BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Yeah, Mark, Happy New Year and all that kind of stuff. Can you wassail in January? I think you probably can. It's a beautiful day in the neighbourhood. Ah, now this is... Would you be my neighbour? A whole new impression has been added to the roster. Hello, neighbour. This is my friend Lloyd. Someone has hurt my friend Lloyd. Shall we have a look? <laughs> it's, honestly, it's I can't good. get it out of my head. And you've have, have you done the, the Hanks interview? Right? I have done the Tom Hanks interview, yes. This is the new Tom Hanks film, Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, which I absolutely love to a thousand pieces. And that is a and the song, disturbingly the song, good. It is. The song goes, Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, in the name of the neighbourhood. Then it goes, It's a Neighbourly Day in the Beautyhood, which is terrible. It's No, but it's genius because it's just... And the whole film is about, is he for real? Can he really be that person? Which and is it, exactly what Matthew Reese's character is, is all about, yeah. So, um, anyways, that's coming out in a couple of weeks' time. It's Mariel Heller, isn't it, who made uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Yeah. I just... And, uh, uh, I cannot get it out of my head. I've got the music. That, make, that will make no sense, because, but once people have seen the movie, they'll be asking you to do that. Yeah. It'll be, I know you've got your band and everything, <laughs> but when people come and see your band, they'll go, yeah, yeah, fine. Do Fred Rogers. Skiffle, do Fred do, Rogers. Do that Fred Rogers, Tom Hanks thing, yeah. do, and then everyone will be... Moved to tears. As, are there any other impressions you've added? Well, no, no, that was it. That was I spent most of the Christmas holidays doing. Someone has hurt my friend Lloyd. Lloyd. He says it like that. It's just something. Honestly, there's just something about it about the way he says it. There are lots of questions that I have yeah. about that film. Yeah. Which so I'm, it's a shame that the Tom Hanks interview has already happened because having watched it and again, uh, I'm going to ask you about it when mm. we finish, but probably not now. Okay. But it's something to look forward to. But I'm looking forward to a whole new year of wittertainment. Yes. Just saying. It's a new decade, Simon. Ten more years. Twenty more years. Ten more. Yes, that's right. Twenty, twenty more years. A hundred more years. And thank you. Make wittertainment great again. <laughs> now, now you spoiled it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so the Safties and Sam Mendes in one show. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? And? And, and all that from a middle brow show. How about that? Exactly. And with also, Simon Mayo. And and plus plus including but, a Star Wars spoiler spectacular. Yes. So people have been warned that we are going to for talk podcasts about only things. talk about talk about things in Star Wars. I mean I presume that everyone who's, you know, uh, who wants to has seen Star Wars already, but yes. we are going to it is spoilerific, spoilertastic. So and that's coming up. Yeah. Um Linda B. Dear gents, following the email reporting the time the Silver Surfers clapped after each musical dance number of Top Hat in the cinema, I wanted to tell you about a similar experience. I used to work as an usher in Rickmansworth in Hertfordshire. Mm -hmm. Uh, On one occasion, only a handful of people were present. After about half an hour, an elderly gentleman got up to leave. Uh, And I haven't worked out whether I should have already told you what the film is. Okay. Or it's written here as a punchline at the end. Okay. We can have a a comedy discussion in just a moment. Okay. After about half an hour, an elderly gentleman got up to leave. I followed him out to make sure he was feeling all right. And he said he was leaving because John Wayne wasn't in the film. (laughs) The film was Wayne's World. (laughs) So my question to you is, is that funny if I said... I was at a screening of Wayne's World and no, this old guy left. That's because, not funny. Because John Wayne wasn't. No, no, film. that's not funny. It's only funny the other way around. I see, I'm not sure about that. No, it. it's only funny if the punchline is Wayne's World. I, I thought what John Wayne was in the film isn't funny. It is if you know that the film is Wayne's World. No, the, okay, the, 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 the grammar of the joke is that you have to do, well, well, you know, John Wayne wasn't in it, it was Wayne's World. 
Simon just said. It's not necessarily Simon. correct. It's a matter of opinion. We're moving Simon. on. Now. Simon, what's the secret of comedy? Is it time? timing? My name, according to this email, is Oliver Ashley Tiro Cotterill Kibblewhite. Wow. 32 and a half, no primary school education, long-term listener, first-time emailer. Right? Yeah. I'm writing to contribute to the recent request for non-code compliant actions that actually contributed to the experience of the film. Okay. Casting my mind back to the 6th of October 2011, you remember, a friend and I attended the 6.10pm screening of the raptor-tastic Jurassic Park right. at the ever-excellent BFI IMAX. Okay. Yes, the big round one. In Waterloo. Yes, very good. Biggest IMAX screening in the country. Which is where I took the whole family to go and see Star Wars on the Saturday before Christmas. I'd forgotten that we were in seats which required neck ache to be induced, <laughs> but it was most enjoyable. During the scene in the kitchen, Tim, played by a young Joseph Mazzello, is attempting to escape the ever-curious raptors in the direction of the open freezer door. Mm-hmm. As the lead raptor turned to pursue him, a young cinema goer of similar age to the actor in question in the row in front cried, No, Tim, no! (laughs) Now, clearly this is a direct violation of Rule 6 of the Code. However, I feel that despite the film's age, this outburst only served to share this child's suspension of disbelief and immersion in the moment of tension playing out on the screen. My friend and I shared a silent chuckle at the outburst and resumed watching. That's very good. Yeah, I think that's... No, I think that's perfectly fine. If you're so immersed in the film... What certificate is that film? It must be a PG. Is it PG? Our top research team will now look it up. We'll now look it internet. up on the internet, yeah, OK. But, you know, it's I PG think, or 12A, what do you think? Yeah. I would think it would be a 12. Do you think? It's quite scary. It is but, quite you know, scary. But I do think no Tim no is a very fine response. No Tim no could be a, a little catchphrase. <laughs> Martin Thomas from Dewsbury... I'm not sure if I qualify as a medium or long-term listener, but circa 2014, I think that's medium term. I'm not sure also what part of the church I should reside in. Is there an, a, an accountant's atrium? I think it's quite a big accountant's atrium. <laughs> because they're all dealing with the profits from the Witter app, which has ceased to exist. What happened there? Did we? I don't know, maybe the... Have you noticed our income is just like... I know, clear. literally just like that. In this year of years? Yeah, in this year of years. What does it take to... I know. Restore it to its former glory. It must have been hacked, right? How am I supposed to know if there are any other Wittertainment listeners next to me when I go to Northwest Iceland? I know. It was up, it was running, it was fine, and then it just got banned. Anyway, the reason for my emergency mail, says Martin, is, like your pod, nothing to do with film. Although I'm not... Although I'm not fully up to date with your show, I don't think your excellent production team informed you of the band behind the wonderful album title Faded Seaside Glamour, the band which we were talking about a few months yes. ago. The band is the equally wonderful Delays, a fabulous band on extended hiatus due to the poor health of lead singer Greg Gilbert. Secondly, I wish to share my realisation that perhaps Dr Kermode has a greater grasp of the aviation industry than he is given credit for. Mm-hmm. Whilst listening to the marvellous Granddaddy album, Last place, last place, sorry. Jason, <laughs> Jason Little refers to an airplane station being a pretty great place to hide during a song called A Lost Machine. Would really? you like to hear what that yes, sounds like? Yes, cool. Here it comes. Airplane station is a pretty great place to hide. Wow. Live old time. Music in its warm inside. How about that? 
Airplane Station. That's good. Where's it, when's this album from? This is Granddaddy, which always reminds me of Mark and Lard. So it's very much a Mark Radcliffe band, Granddaddy. Okay, the album is Last Place, and that's Airplane Station is a pretty great place it's to hide. hide. Yes, how about that? There we go. Whether that's... Jason Little is a fellow Wittertainee and has drawn inspiration from Mark's ramblings or Airplane Station is bona fide industry lingo, <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> anyway, the other thing, can I just... We, did we get that... Uh, I just here's you want an earworm? Yeah, go on. I'm just going to give you an earworm because that album by Delay's Faded Seaside Glamour. Yeah, has it. The opening track is called Wanderlust. Okay, all right. And I love Wanderlust. I think okay. it's fantastic. And we're just going to play, play the opening opening twenty seconds. Okay. And this has been running through my head ever since I read this email. Okay. This, is, this is it. Nice guitar, huh? It's, a lo- it's really, really worth you finding out because it's a beautiful song. The two things that that reminded me of are the main theme from uh, Badland and then the main theme from True Romance, which, of course, is ripped off the main theme from Badland. Right, well, you spoiled it for me now. Am I OK? I'm sorry yeah. about that. For me, that was just a track. <laughs> it was just a thing. From Fading okay. Seaside Clamour. Oh, we are. Uh, by delays. Anyway, uh, Martin, thank you very much indeed. So just need, we're allowing space in this podcast yeah. uh, for the for our big... Uh, Spoilerific. Star Wars spoiler. Mm-hmm. So we won't have a lot of time to warn you a little bit later on, so no. we're just telling you at the end of the show... Yeah, after the show is finished, after we've drawn it to a natural conclusion... There'll probably be a klaxon of some kind, yeah. some big noisy effect... Yeah. Which lets you know we're going to have a Star Wars spoiler. Spoilers today. starting now. And if you then carry on listening and listen and hear a spoiler, bait nobody at blame but yourself. And what accent was that? I don't know. He thought it was a little bit... A little <laughs> bit bait. Was it? <laughs> it was. Just a little bit bait. It was vocals we added on. on afterwards. What's on? Uh, OK, very good. Here comes the show. And this is Five Live and we're here. And happy it's New 2020. Year. Apparently, and this has been, you know, we weren't here last week. Apologies for that, but there were people even better than us. They were very good. They were here. And they were very controversial as well. Yes, well, I was uh, I was doing something else. I can't but you were obviously listening obsessively. You probably listened two or three times I did, just yeah. to make sure. No, obviously, I was fascinated because there, there was a there was a central disagreement about a, a quite a big release film and they was the, all the issues were, were, were raised and discussed and it, I thought it was really well done. We're going to raise and discuss them a little bit more when we, we are the box office top ten. But what an extraordinarily packed programme it is with... Not just one guest, but three guests. Three guests. You've got the Safdie brothers. Although, although, admittedly, two of them are together. Yes, what with them being brothers and everything. And everything. Uh, so that'll be the Safdie brothers to talk Uncut Gems, plus Sam Mendes, uh, who is now Sir Sam Mendes, talks about 1917. And the surring happened after you'd interviewed him. Yeah, I mean, I imagine he knew about it, but he selfishly didn't tell me, so he, <laughs> he waited for Her Majesty. That's to, the way he rolls. He just break the he, news. Didn't, he didn't think to say it. Um, before we broke up for Christmas and the New Year. Um, December podcast magazine and website Pod Bible yes. launched their awards and listeners could vote for their favourite podcast right. of the year. And uh, there's a best film and TV podcast category. Right. And you'll never guess who won. Well, I'm hoping it's us. It was Empire, actually. So. Uh, was it? Okay. No, no, it was us. Oh. <laughs> Quote, the BBC's flagship film show is a worthy winner of the Pod Bible poll. Mark and Simon bring critical analysis, insightful interviews with filmmakers and a lot of bickering. So, thank you very much if you voted <laughs> yeah, for us. Yeah, you there can, we go. That's, that's what gave the us the winners. edge over Empire, right? Yeah. You could, if you're interested, you could see the other winners at Pod Bible. 
mag.com. I thought I read that with style. Don't you think? <laughs> yeah, that's that's why they voted for us because I can read that stuff out with podbible.com. Mag. Mag. <laughs> Mag.com. Um, th- this is an email that made me just stop and uh, and breathe and think. Wow, this is a fairly astonishing thing. In a in a good way. In a good well in a it's a bad way but a good way. Okay. A bad way, a g- good and bad. Okay, in a week in which we're doing Uncut Gems, I'm anxious already. <laughs> yes, that is that is true. Anyway, it comes from Carl, uh, Carl Mayton. Okay. Hello, Carl. Hello, Carl. You may have heard that Australia is on fire. My wife and I are colonial commoners. I'm an expat Brit and she is a former American. We're both academics who live half their life in rural Australia. My wife, Sarah, is a volunteer in the Rural Fire Service. The only fire service that we have out here is entirely made up of volunteers, something which never ceases to impress me. And we've been reading all about that because the people are on the front line. For nearly three months, our valley has been attacked by what are designated as mega fires from the west, the east and then the north. Everything on our property was burnt down except for our home, thankfully. Wow. Faced with a scorched landscape that looks like a scene from a World War I movie, we turned to the church, your church, for inspiration. And what better help to replenish the valley than... Now, what do you think the next word is? I have no idea. Obviously, it's wassail. (laughs) Really? (laughs) So, says Carl, I soaked some toast in Australian brandy and wine, a suitably local version of mulled cider. My wife donned a paper crown from a Christmas cracker and became the wassail queen. She then sang a wassail and placed the toast in a gum tree. I attach a couple of photos. Sarah, let me me pass them around. Wow. Pass them down to you. Sarah has a blue bandage on her leg. The previous evening she was hit and pinned down by a tree whilst fighting a wildfire. But that could not not stop her doing the wassail as directed by the church. Tickety-tonk and down with climate change deniers. Carl Mayton. unbelievable. I know. So what she's done is she sent... uh, Carl has sent some photographs of uh, the scorched earth that is surrounding their thankfully still intact home. Yeah. With wife, American wife sticking toast into the tree because that's what you're supposed to be supposed to do if you're out there wassailing that is amazing so thanks to sarah and thanks to carl and i just sort of stopped and thought you know we do all this stuff here i know and on the other literally on the other side of the world facing the most unspeakable calamity which we've been reading about and watching with horror there's someone going out and sticking toast in a tree i have to say she's a firefighter who's damaged from the previous night's firefighting it also puts into perspective my oh the trains have been really hard recently i've had such trouble with the transport system you realize yeah you have just you you have no idea what hard that's what you've been saying that's what i said i know but you don't do that voice i'm doing an impression of me sounding complaining complaining yeah no that's right so southwest trains in comparison with yeah, exactly. I said it puts all my whinging yes, into, does. you know. That's true. But thank you very much for the photograph. That's fantastic. Uh, so, Carl and Sarah, we dedicate wow. the whole programme to, to you. And Sarah, you and all your um, fellow volunteer uh, firefighters. Um, this says, I, it's signed KP Spong Esquire. Okay. But at the top of the email, it says Christopher Ty. So, anyway, dear him and the other one, the BBC's top flagship film programme, just got referenced in the Radio 4 sitcom Fags, Mags and Bags. Have you heard that? No. No, I haven't heard it either. Anyway, it's about five minutes in, if you care to listen. Well, obviously, suitably intrigued. Yeah. You did. Go on. 
Regale Mrs. Burkett with your film and TV knowledge. Well, uh, Citizen Kane, Betty Blue, hello to Jason Isaacs, Werner Herzog, Maison Scene, Shian Andalou. Thank Very you. good. Very good. I'm sure in context it made it made perfect, <laughs> made perfect sense. Now the only the only thing is so it says it signed KP Spong Esquire. Okay. And I wonder if that's a slight misprint from Monty Python when they had Kevin Phillips Bong as part oh. of their election night thing in the seventies. But is that the one which is the, the other election which has got Ole for Tang Biscuit but Tarquin Lim Tim Fim Lim Lim Tim Nim Ole for Tang Biscuit? But anyway, if KP Spong is someone else that I've missed a joke, Christopher, then I'm sure you'll let us know. Uh, should we do the box office top ten? If we absolutely must. Tell, tell us what you're looking forward to particularly in the rest of the show. I'm really looking forward to hearing you speaking to the Safdie brothers because I'm you know, a fan of their works. I'm really looking forward to hearing you speak to Sir, as he now is apparently Sam Mendes, about 1917 because you and I saw 1917 together as part of a the Comic Relief Prize, didn't we? We did. And um, and then we just and what a prize! What a prize it was! That's yeah, a wait a long time. <laughs> yeah, but blimey, got there in the end. So uh, box office top ten, surprisingly, starting at ten, Knives Out, which has done really well. Um, there's been quite a lot written about how well it's done, considering it's a completely original property. Because nowadays, you know, things that are based on an existing property are other other sort of short bets. I thought it was great. I watched it again over the. Holidays because um, uh, Linda hadn't seen it and uh, Gabe hadn't seen it, so we so we watched it again. And I, once again, I found it really funny. I think the performances are great. I think it works as a whodunit. I love the score. It's yeah, it's such a good piece of cinema. Uh, nine playing with fire. Well, you know, interestingly, after that fantastic email about you know a volunteer firefighter and the you know the, that extraordinary story of heroism and courage, playing and, sti- with, and sticking toast and sticking toast in a tree, um, I'd much rather have that email and that picture than have to sit through playing with fire, which is uh, which is rubbish. Why is it rubbish? Well, it's it's one of those kind. Of, it's it's a family comedy film that is neither funny nor for families, right. So has it got anything? Don't you, well, don't you remember I did the little video review for it? I do. And I said, I said the thing about, you know, it's, it, if you took your child to it, that could be construed as an act of cruelty. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was very funny. Thank you very much. It was very good. Yeah, because I'd suffered watching the film and then we ran out of time. And I think we should now waste no more time on it. Cats at eight. <sighs> well. Well. I mean, I think the, the most recent report was that Cats is on track to lose at least £70 million. Which is, if if you remember, if you cast your mind back, I um I came up with this formula some time ago, saying you know that, that there are certain ways that you you can make movies and guarantee that they won't lose money, and I said, but one of the ways that, that one of the caveats is it doesn't work with comedy, and um and Cats is nominally and it's comedy or music, I mean it's you know but it, it's in that area, and it is perfect proof that that is still a way that you can lose your shirt, um. The the film pr- provoked unbelievable uh, reviews, but then it is a very very hard film. Have you seen it yet? No, and you won't do now. No, I don't suppose I will. No, um, and that was of course you know in Ricky Gervais's uh, speech at the Golden Globes. We all know incidentally the Golden Globes are nonsense, but Ricky Gervais's opening speech was quite funny because it was so brutal. But as he said, you know, James, he made a joke about James Corden, and then he said James Corden was also in Cats, but then nobody saw Cats. Um, and actually, it, it is true, it, it has tanked at the box office. Um, so it's not it's not critics being sniffy, it's nothing to do with that. It's that the film doesn't work. As I said, the best you can say about it is there's a couple of moments in which you think it almost works, but those are a couple of moments. And for the most of it, you just sit there thinking, it's just so... 
ill-judged that it's it, it's just a shame because the whole fundamental central concept of it is it just does not work as a film and i i wonder whether halfway through they realized that i wonder whether right up until the release date because tom hooper as we know was fiddling with it right up to and beyond the release date how can you fiddle with something once it's been released welcome to the digital world in the old days somebody would finish a film on celluloid and they would rip it out of your hands because they had to go and print up the prints and so that was the end of it nowadays because of um digital uh you can make up new dcps and upload them to so it is possible for filmmakers to carry on messing around much longer than it was before. And, of course, there are all the news stories about, you know, last-minute tweaks and, you know, Hooper himself said that he was working on it right up to the last minute before the premiere. I think, in the end, it was rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It was a fundamental flaw with the film itself, which is that that idea of doing them as CG-furred cats just didn't make any sense. People, every, everyone who's seen the musical and loved it said that what they loved was the physicality. They loved the dance. They loved the songs. They loved the fact that the performers came you know, into the audience. It was a kind of immersive experience. That's what they loved about it. No, but none of them said it would have been better if they, was, if they actually looked like CG furry cats. And a DCP means? A digital cinema pack. So it's, it's what, you, what, you, what you watch a film off if it's digitally projected. Uh, Robin Harvey, grade two trumpet, uh, to Mr. Mistopheles and Rum Tum Tugger. Uh, which one would you like to be? I wouldn't want to be either of them. I'm emailing about co-compliance and the movie Cats. After watching the trailer, I hadn't intended to see it. But after... Which is obviously <laughs> the exact opposite of what the trailer is supposed <laughs> but to But that be. is what the trailer did. It made everyone Correct. go, I don't want to see that. But after careful nagging from my musical-obsessed partner and my sense of morbid curiosity... We set off to experience it at Peckhamplex, our local cinema in South London. We had expected to be the only ones in the screening after seeing the, box, the poor box office numbers, but were amazed to find the cinema full. This was no ordinary cinema audience, and within minutes the code had gone completely out of the window. People jeered, laughed raucously, and even occasionally yelled out their own jokes. It was like being in a Prince Charles cinema screening of The Room or Rocky Horror. <laughs> it was impossible for us not to get into the spirit too, and at the end the audience all cheered and applauded. Despite having had a fun time, I did, however, have a concern. What about people who'd come to see the film yeah. in earnest? Yeah, Clearly exactly. the audience had behaved appallingly by normal code-compliant standards. This wasn't meant to be a comedy after all. So my question is, is it acceptable to break the code for cats? Well, there, the precedent for this is... show. This happened after the fact, but it's showgirls. Some people said, you know, cats is going to prove to be like um, The Greatest Showman. It's going to open to terrible reviews, but then people are going to find it. It's going to find its audience and make its money in Greatest Showman, which many critics, myself included, myself primarily, got completely wrong. You know, I did say famously it doesn't have a single memorable tune in it, and it went on to be one of the biggest-selling uh, soundtrack albums, indeed albums, of, um, you know, the modern age, if not all time. Um, Showgirls is a better comparison because Showgirls, which was, you know, ripped by the critics and largely ignored by audiences and won all the, 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 the Razzies, then developed a second life in the same way as Room did, as a kind of, you know, people would go along and shout out Rocky Horror style uh, jokes and it became a kind of cult thing to go and see Showgirls. Mm. And actually some people said, I love Showgirls, but they loved it in an ironic way. I'm not sure that doing that on the first run is legitimate, but then again, Cats is a film which, which, I mean, I was listening to Robbie talking about it. He 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 said he was he was just so, you know, jaw dropped 
by what he was watching. He said he, he kind of he had this this lovely phrase. He said you kind of got lulled into a false sense of security, and then you you kind of then you go suddenly oh, what, what am I? You know, it's like you suddenly realise what it was that you were watching. And I I do think that Cats is one of those films. I mean, ideally in a first run, you should let the film play. But Cats is very bad. Robin <clears throat> concludes by saying, I would be interested to know if others have had a similar experience, which from emails they have. Screenings like this could eventually help the film break even over time. The film could no, become won't. a cult curiosity. No, it won't. It, if, it's, if, it's, if it's on course to lose £70 million in its opening run, that's not going to happen. Um, this from Grace Hatch, age 13, from Cardiff. I'm a new listener, introduced to the podcast by my dad. I'm also a first-time emailer who's recently watched and listened to Mark's review of Cats. I was somewhat familiar with Cats as a musical because I performed in it with my youth theatre group. I, for the most part, entirely disagree with Mark. I thought it was a fitting tribute to the stage show and T.S. Eliot's poetry. I agree that during the tap number... Uh, where they were dancing on a railway. They more resembled mice than cats, but this didn't really bother me. I thought that the CGI was fine. I thought they really looked like cats, but I think it's odd that it's one of the main things people are complaining about, saying that, it's not a quote from Mark, they look disturbingly and not like cats at all. They look disturbing and not like cats at all. It is blatantly obvious that they are not cats. It is a musical, and I was therefore not just watching for enjoyment of the film, but for all the performances and arts and aspects, dancing and singing as well as acting. I thought the choreography was amazing, the dancing impeccable, and the songs were great. Overall, it made me laugh, not cry, uh, though the same cannot be said for my mum, who sobbed all the way through memory, and I basically thought it was all great. Okay, well, that's Thank good. You, that's good to hear, and um, you know, and I'm glad whenever anybody sees a film and enjoys it, I found that the CGI just came between me and the dancing and the songs, and I do, I just think the whole CGI. It's, you know, you say like well, everyone said they didn't look like cats, which I did also say. Um, but the point is, in that case, why do the CG? Don't do the CG. Do it as a, you know, there is dance on film. With, you know, people, you don't have to CG things. Why don't you just do it with costumes or leotards or, or just if you're going to film cats, why do the CG? It doesn't make sense. Spies in Disguise at seven. Which I haven't seen. And Robbie was quite positive about it, I think, on the show. Frozen 2 at six. Still doing incredibly well. I'm still slightly uh, less fond of it than everybody else is. I thought it was a little bit of a of a letdown after the first one. There are certain things in it that are kind of cute. Obviously, it has worked with, with some audiences. Um, some more memorable songs than I originally thought, but nothing... I don't think it's up there with the original. Uh, Jojo Rabbit is a new entry at number five. Now I'm going to read Fine. some. Uh, I'm going to do some correspondence, and then yeah, you can then you can do your thing. Yeah, that thing that you do. That thing I do. Fraser McCallum. Jojo Rabbit is the first new release I've seen this year, and hmm, there is an undeniably great film in this material. The story is wonderful. Scarlett Johansson is exceptional. Between this, her sterling work in the Avengers franchise and her outstanding performance in Marriage Story, she is an actor on an incredible hot streak. Whilst the younger cast, Roman Griffin Davis, Archie Yates and especially Thomas McKenzie, so great in last year's Leave No Trace, yes, you give the film real heart. Yet I don't feel like Taika Waititi has fully found that great film. For a comedy, it isn't funny enough, even for a fan of Waititi's brand of humour. The tonal shifts are awkward, and one particular sequence with Sam Rockwell and Alfie Allen in the midst of battle is misjudged. Make no mistake, this is a film worth seeing, and one should be applauded for the risks it takes, and the final scene is really beautiful. But for all that, something is missing that prevents Jojo Rabbit from reaching the heights of greatness that Hunt for the Wilder People... Wilder 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 People? Wilder People did. 
um, down with the Nazis, be they imaginary, historic or too sadly current. Sam Curd in Nottingham. I've just come out of Jojo Rabbit and I'm still wiping away tears of laughter or of sorrow. Um, not sure. I was unprepared for how moving and emotional this would be, as the trailer made it out to be a Mel Brooksy laugh-a-minute jokeathon. Instead, it's that and so much more. I had to watch the third act of the film through one eye as I'd cried an, out, an eyelash into the other one. Taika Waititi does it again. Uh, down with the Nazis, even the funny ones. Uh, a 14-year-old Wittitainee called Polly says to the old men who appear on a Friday, thanks, mm -hmm. I love this film. It was thought-provoking, creating sympathy for how the youth of World War II Germany was sold the Nazi dream and how they slowly realised the truth. This is shown in Hitler's slow decline in kindness towards Joe Hitler, in inverted commas, as his friend realised how the Nazi party is not as good as he was told and how the Jews were not the horned monsters as he was taught. As well as this, I thought Jojo Rabbit is funny, tense, an all-round well-done film with excellent performances from Roman Griffin Davis and Thomas e. McKenzie, who played Jojo and Elsa. Jojo Rabbit passed the six laugh test and I would thoroughly recommend it to everyone and anyone provided they fit in the, into the 12A category. Uh, Peggy and Isha, I for one would like to thank our super sub last week for his argument that the full horror of World War II was not fully expressed in Jojo Rabbit, therefore it had failed as a film. I'm now applying the same criteria to many other films in the World War II canon and have found Escape to Victory, Casablanca and The Dirty Dozen, among several hundred others, sadly wanting in the explicit and extensive mentions of Nazi atrocities department. Uh, Peggy, thank you very much indeed. David in York, uh, not intended. This film is not intended to be a vicious satire on Nazism. It is a movie about the loss of innocence seen through the eyes of a ten-year-old boy. Reviewing it as a failure for not being satirical enough when it's not a satire invalidates the review. You have to understand whose point of view we're experiencing. Jojo sees his mother as a goddess representing all that is good, pure, and decent. So that's how we see her. Hitler is his fun best friend. Being a Nazi is just a club to join. Jews are evil, there is a black and white morality. As the film progresses, and particularly after one astonishingly hard moment, this naive worldview fades and we see the horrors of war increasingly intruding and the complexities emerging. By the end, his life is now surrounded by death and destruction and only a, hero a heroic act from a conflicted character saves him. I'm amazed how wrong the critics are on this and I suspect audiences will review this much better, judging it with an open mind on what it is and what it is not. Uh, David in York. Mark. Well, it's interesting how polarising the, the film has proved. I have to say that uh, on balance, largely, uh, many more people I've, I've met like it than, than don't like it. And those that do have had a very profound uh, emotional response to it. Many people have written about crying, which I was surprised by because that was one thing that, I, that it never occurred to me that that was the film that I was watching. It never had that effect on me at all. And I cry a lot in the movies and I didn't in, in this. I interviewed Taika Waititi about a year ago, just when he was ed editing the films. He spent a long time editing it. That is something that he does. And he, he said this thing. He said he described it as a strange art comedy. You'll probably know that the source material is very different tonally. But he said it's kind of like a strange art comedy. He said none of my films are really comedies. They're films that have got comedy in them. So he didn't use the word satire, but he was talking about the, the, the difficulty of getting the balance between the comedic elements and the tragic elements uh, right. And he was spending a lot of time in the edit to do that. And he thought that he had uh, succeeded. And I have to say from the audience responses, it seems that he has. My own feeling was that I agree with the first email, which was I didn't think it was funny enough or sharp enough to uh, to really cut to the heart of its subject matter. 
Robbie was very eloquent uh, last week about a very particular take that he had on the film's failing and something that therefore for him made the film very aggressively problematic. And that is uh, also something that I have heard, uh, I, I have read from Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian. Again, he, I think he gave it a one-star review and really, really didn't like it. I'm kind of in the middle. I think there are things about it that are interesting. I do think its heart is in the right place. And I think that Taika Waititi has tried to balance those tonal elements. And obviously comedy in this area goes back to, you know, Chaplin and The Great Dictator. Um, Roberta Benigni's Life is Beautiful won three Oscars, although that always baffled me because I, I never understood why people took Life is Beautiful to their heart so much. There is famously the Jerry Lewis Day the Clown Cried film, which nobody has seen yet, other than the few people who've seen the fragments of it. Um, and it, it is a very, very hard thing to get right. Uh, Mel Brooks is on record, I believe, as saying that he thinks that Jojo Rabbit is terrific. And of course, the producers is is the, the, the thing that was actually brought up by one of those emails. For me... I thought that the film didn't succeed in in order to for for, for the, the comedy and the satire and the tragedy to work. It has to be tougher in the tough bits, um, and I I I found it weirdly slightly bland, and it was a very weird thing for a film about that subject matter to be bland. That said, I think Thomas and Mackenzie brought a real uh, weight to the central role of Elsa, which I thought was underwritten and I thought that she did very well with it. She is an amazing actor and she was indeed brilliant in uh, Leave No Trace and I have no doubt that we are going to see so much more of her in the future. I th just think the film itself didn't work tonally for me. I think there, I when, um, when uh, Taika Waititi was describing it, he described it to me and he said, because this is for a podcast, no one can see the look of horror on your face as I describe the film. But I, I, I didn't find it, I didn't find it offensive in any way at all. I just the problem was I found it a little bit bland. I thought it was fine. I don't think it's I don't think it's anything like as successful as Hunt for the Wilder People, which again took a, a source novel and transformed it into something very, very different from the source. So I think it's fine, and I know that you like it very much. Yeah, I did. Well, I certainly liked it more than you. I would say I was very nervous about it in the same way I was nervous going into Death of Stalin, wondering, sure. can this be laugh out loud funny and talk about the atrocities of Stalin? Yes. And it managed to do that, you know, brilliantly. What Stalin did. Or Stalin, did or Stalin did. I think Death of Stalin did, and I think it's a better film. Yes, I would. I think I think that's right. But I, I came, I, I laughed out loud at Jojo Rabbit, and I also thought that it was, I, I thought they got the balance, I thought he got the balance absolutely right, and I thought the performances were terrific, and yes, and I so I enjoyed it a whole star more than you did. Yeah, sure, uh, but I but I enjoyed it, like I said, for me it was a kind of middling, okay, you know, some successes, some failures, some people absolutely love it and are, are in tears about it, and it's clearly profoundly affecting them, and some people really, really hate it. A Little Women is at four. Which I loved, and you know... It's it's such. I mean, it's you know, there's a reason why the story keeps being readapted, but this is such a such a, a clever re readaptation of it. it. I love the way that the, the the time frame has been moved around. I love the performances. I love the way it looks. Um, the soundtrack is a little a little on the nose, perhaps, but I, I I just thought it was terrifically well done, and I thought you could feel 
the enthusiasm for the subject matter from Greta Gerwig and indeed from the entire cast. Yeah. I thought it was great. Got, um, if, if I can find some time, I'll read out the Little Women emails uh, okay. later on in the programme. Uh, the Gentleman is a new entry. Didn't like it at all. Felt like a very retrograde step from uh, Guy Ritchie going back to the kind of the stuff that he did in you know early on, which I was never a fan of. Jumanji, the next level, is it two? You know, Jumanji ended up taking the nearly a billion dollars worldwide. And so, of course, there's a sequel. Um, and actually, I thought it's... It's fine. I, I, I was surprised they got away with it with the reboot last time. Now a sequel to a reboot. Well, actually, they did get away with it. And the number one is, of course, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. And for all information on that, um, if you look for our podcast, which will be available later on, mm -hmm. we're doing a spoiler-tastic version in which we talk about things that actually happen, <laughs> you know, which is kind of like breaking all the yeah. rules. Because uh, I have to say I was very proud that when we reviewed it on the radio, I did almost no plot at all. No. Nothing. None at all. Nothing. If Nada. Barely said anything. Yet. Really. Yeah. You just talked around. I did. <laughs> Very quickly. Yes. Um, on the subject of uh, Jojo Rabbit, um, if you like Jojo Rabbit and you hear an opinion about Jojo Rabbit that you don't agree with, um, taking to the internet to be abusive about the person whose opinion you don't uh, agree with doesn't do you or the film any favours. Um, let's talk to the Safdie brothers. Uh, this is Josh and Benny about to talk about Uncut Gems. Give us 20 seconds on the Safdies. It, uh, the Safdies are best described as the most anxiety-inducing filmmakers of modern cinema. Their most recent film before this was Good Time with uh, Robert Pattinson, which was a story about a botched heist that goes out of control and uh, the sort of the ramifications of that. The film they made before that was a really, really uh, in-your-face portrait of destitute, uh, um, uh, dr drug-addicted life. They make films that are like a rising panic attack and they get brilliant, and I mean brilliant, performances from their cast. OK, so that's the primer. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear from Josh and Benny after this clip. I'm begging you, just, just give me another shot. You know what, Howard? Say yes, what? I think you are the most annoying person I have ever met. I hate being with you. I hate looking at you. And if I had my way, I would never see you again. It's because you're mad. You're mad, and it makes sense. You can punch me if you want. Oh, thanks. Hey, I was, I was ready for you. I don't even want to touch you. And that's a clip from Uncut Gems. I'm delighted to say I've been joined by its writers and the directors. Well, the Safties, that's uh, Josh and Benny. Gentlemen, hello, how are you? Okay, hello. How are, how are you? How are you? Yeah, doing well. <laughs> Welcome to the UK. How was your flight over? I know the answer to the question. So. <laughs> there was uh, in incredible turbulence. Uh, but, you know, I'll say this, you know, when you have... Uh, when, when, you, when you have suicidal thoughts, it makes the, fight, the fear of flying kind of easier. Right. So it was particularly bad. Too. Well, there was there was a moment where you you're watching everybody react to the turbulence and they just reach towards the sides of their walls and you realize, oh, my God, this is you just see it's it fine. all happen. Flying is terrible. It's terrible. It's not a, it's not we're not meant to be doing it. Well, there was <laughs> just like we're not meant to be making movies. We're not meant there's, to, there's, to fly. There's a sequence in Fata Morgana, the Herzog movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I haven't. There. Where it's just I think it's like 10 minutes of. Airplanes landing and taking off. Airplanes landing and taking off. And Set to Leonard Cohen. Yeah, you're just Suzanne. watching it, being like, "Oh my god, <laughs> we're doing that." <laughs> anyway, all of which has nothing to do with the film. Um, so, tell us before we go into any kind of detail. Tell us the story of Uncut Gems. Just tell us uh, where we are. 
Oh, the movie's about a uh, New York City jeweler, a bling jeweler, who um, works in uh, 47th Street, and he's a trying to earn his place back in life, and he's planning on doing so. He owes, owes a lot of people a lot of money. He's planning on doing so by parlaying the the smuggling, you could call it, of a, of a black opal from Ethiopia and trying to spin it with a professional basketball player to make ends, to make it all right. It all rests on that jam. It does. And this is Adam Sandler's character. Mm -hmm. Correct, yeah. Who is called Howard Ratner. That's right. (laughs) So explain the character that that you've developed here for Adam Sandler because he is unrecognizable, Uh I think. Yeah, well, we put a lot of work in with Adam. Uh, He gave a lot of preparation into this character who is, quote, always on. You know, like a that's true. like a like a Rodney Dangerfield type. That was one of the inspirations for the character there. And you know, you spend a lot of time in the Diamond District, and you observe you know the way jewelers are and how they're constantly gambling a, a gamble on top of a gamble on top of gamble. And he's a he's a supreme optimist, Howard. He, you know, as all gamblers are, he's nauseatingly optimistic. You know, everything is um, going to be okay in the next minute or so. Or not only okay, it's going to be heavenly. Well, the thing that's amazing about Adam is even if you look to his earlier comedies, what he's doing with those films is he's grounding these insane, absurd situations with the realness of emotional attachment. You know, you watch them and you truly believe that what's happening to him on the screen is what is happening to you. You are totally connected. And we knew if we could take that and bring it to this film, it will work. You know, you really need to root for Howard for this for this film to get there. And... He put in all that time and effort following these jewelers, learning how they talked, how they sell. You know, when he's in the showroom, he speaks one way. And when he's in the back room, he speaks another way. It's, it's pretty incredible to watch. So what was it about Adam Sandler that you wanted to work with? Why, why did you Oh, you know, well, we, we spent 10 years trying to make this movie. And he was the first one from the very beginning. He was the only person we knew who could make this movie function. When I say function, I mean it's a thrilling film. It's a... It's a thriller in all senses. You can watch audiences move to the edge of their seats slowly mm-hmm. and so they almost fall off. But you needed somebody to ground it with that sense of not lovability, but um, sense of humor. You know, he needed the humor, the comic relief in this film is paramount. It's so important. You know, otherwise the film doesn't function. And he, again, he brings a... Uh, an accessibility and a lovability and a and a, a larger than life quality. That a root is. a rootability. You know, if you, <laughs> you want to root for him again. Like you need to be with Howard when he's making these decisions, and you need to always want him to make the right one. Because it feels like a Safdie's film. It doesn't feel like a, what people might perceive as an Adam Sandler film. Well, yeah, he said that from the beginning. He's like, I don't. I, I want to make your movie. Same thing. Our cinematographer Darius Kanji said. He's. I want to make your film. I don't want you to make my film. And, uh, you know, Sandler was an incredible collaborator on this, but he, he was very clear. He's like, this isn't one of my movies. This is your movie. Mark, who's the critic on the program, is a big fan of Punch Drunk Love. Mm-hmm. And he's not a particular fan of Adam Sandler. So anyway, <laughs> he, he said this, and I quote, it's clear that what Paul Thomas Anderson saw in Sandler is that the thing people find funny about his comedies, other people find creepy. There is something about his character that is ragingly violent and angry. Here is the evidence that he can do brilliant work. Oh, do you wow. kind of go along with that? Uh, about Punch Drunk Love, he said yeah. that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think Sandler in general, is a, he's a very unique person. He's peculiar in his own ways. That's, you can hear it in his, in his stand-up, and you can see it in the way he performs it. He has something behind his eyes, a yearning behind his eyes that's, that's 
really sweet and I think he's also has a, a burning rage underneath him as well and and I agree I think the humor is weird you know it's strange and I and uh, totally um, I, don't, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it creepy so I don't really agree with that quote I don't I don't that's the last word I'd use to describe anything Sandler but I love the film I love punch Drunk Globe. yeah it's one of it's one of the best you know and I think in that what's amazing what um, PTA did was he he saw what was in some of Sandler's comedies and took it and put it into a new context and it just created an in kind of an amazing new world and again we were inspired by those early records of Sandler's first you know it's amazing we didn't really even have an image of him other than the one on the cover of the album and then you had to imagine it all because these are giant worlds on the record and there's just such a uh, attention to detail in some of those things that it's unbelievable, and the thought that goes into all of it is. But the but the genius of Punch Drunk Love was you know the vanguard quality of PTA as as you know it's been very widely recognized, universally recognizes that he saw Sandler and said I'm going to make a movie around this person, and he saw in movies like Big Daddy he saw. A yearning optimist who's frustrated with the results of the world, and and I think that's what's so cool about that movie. So you kind of did the same thing, though. For you sure, kind of built this film around around him. For, absolutely, I remember we um, we had the incredible opportunity to to um, <laughs> to show uh, PTA the the uh, movie early on in the edit uh, Sandler because of Sandler introduced, and I got a, I made tried to get a picture of the two of them holding my <laughs> Criterion Collection D Blu-ray. They had them sign it, and we admitted this to PTA to Paul. He, uh, we said, you know, what you what you did with that film was was you know specifically for me at the time when, I, when that movie came out. I grew up loving Sandler. His comedy records were so important to me, and the movies, of course, too. And then. That movie came out at a time when I was really into art cinema and older movies. I was catching up with basically film history. And I don't know, I, I, I remember just being, my mind was blown to see mm. the kind of the, the way the movie kind of melded with the persona. And, and that's what we were going for with Gems, too. It's a, as other people have commented, it's a thrilling film. It's utterly exhausting. <laughs> You're being shouted at for a long time uh, in this movie. Are they improvising at all? Is Adam, do you let Adam Sandler off the leash here? It, how much is improv? Well, the thing is, is you can't really use improv properly unless you have a very rigid, strict guideline, you know, which is the strict, the script. And it's, it's a, it's a great means. It's not a good end. Yes. And I think um, with that, we, we had the, Josh always says we always had the benefit of following Sandler after his stand-up special where he did 50 cities. And the ability to adapt on a dime while you're performing for all those people, sometimes three hours of material, is incredible. So we could kind of use that to our advantage while we were filming. He could come in and out of, of the script and kind of go off on a little bit of an island, but always knew exactly where to go afterwards. As you, as you could imagine, the script is a 160-plus yeah. page script. <laughs> I can with, imagine that. Yeah. With a <laughs> lot of dialogue. And, and um, Sandler was amazing at, at not only memorizing, but internalizing the dialogue so well so that he could go out on yeah. a limb and improvise and, and uh, add a lot of little jokes here and there in the Borscht Belt tradition. We encourage improvisation to try to figure out emotionally how to get to certain things, but... But again, the script is paramount. I just want to add, you talk about the pace of it. We actually had the benefit to show PTA, I think we had about an hour and 40 minutes of the movie edited. And when it was finished, we turned to him and we're like, so like, what do you think? <laughs> do you think? Yeah. And he said, he sat down and he's like, well, he was sitting down and he said, so does the pace continue like this the whole time? And we're like, yes, it does. And he's like, 
amazing, incredible. But <laughs> it was there was that little moment of pause. Well, there's a, there's conversely there's, yes. a, there's a story of uh, Robert Altman's story <laughs> uh, making uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and and he was showing not making him showing McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and he was sitting next to Warren Beatty, <laughs> and uh, 20 minutes into the movie, he, Beatty turned to Altman and said, "Does the whole thing sound like this?" And Altman excited said, "Yeah." And Warren Beatty was like, oh. He wasn't thinking it in the same way. Yeah. <laughs> it was a different scenario. That's the other So that thing. pause between, is it all like this? And you go, yes, that's great. That must have felt like your lifetime. Just It was, you know, waiting. obviously, you know, someone you look up to, you, you, he has the knowledge of, of decades worth of work and, mm-hmm. and uh, experience. So, yeah, you, you are kind of looking to him to be like, you know, because for us, really, we knew what we wanted. We knew what we liked. But he was one of the first people to see the movie mm-hmm. before – Scott Rudin even and, saw it. And it producer. was a producer. <laughs> yeah, and it was the thing is, is that pace is so important. And to be able to kind of build up a kinetic energy and then know when to pause it, bring it back, and then ratchet it up. At yeah, that times. was something that he talked yeah. about is the scene between Adina and Sandler. He said it's so important you have these. Mm-hmm. Yes, the movie is work, moving at a breakneck pace, but you have these moments where the movie stops and mm-hmm. gives you a pause mm-hmm. every once in a while. Not in the traditional sense, yeah, yeah. but it does do that, and so those how, are important. So, how do you cast around Adam Sandler then? Because the people, because you work with professional actors and non-professional mm-hmm. actors, but if someone is often riffing and working with all this text that you've given yeah. them, you have to be sure you've got the right people around. So, I'll here. tell you a good mm-hmm. story, an anecdote with Eric Bogosian, who is somebody who another person we wanted for this movie early on, because he's just he can be so acerbic, and I don't know, I liked him as the quote unquote bad guy. We were shooting a scene, the scene in the SUV where they're, you know, letting Sandler's character know, Howard know, they've had enough. They know he's been running around with the money that he owes them and placing bets, et cetera, et cetera. And we're shooting that scene. Benny and I are in the trunk. You have, I don't know, five guys in an SUV and the three guys in the back who are with Sandler, you know, there's a lot of physicality in it. They're... They're first-time actors. They don't know what how to do the stunts properly, so they're they're really, they're learning the stunts. Yeah, they're learning that. it on that moment. So they're really grabbing him, and like it's getting intense in there. And um, and they're also they have lines, and they're saying their lines, but we were also encouraging them to kind of be free with the with the invectives and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it was getting out of control. But but Bogosian in that scene has some of the most expositional lines in the whole movie, which ugh, I always cringe when I even hear that word. But <laughs> he has to get this stuff across. So I remember. He was. We were filming, and uh, he couldn't find his entry points. You know, the <laughs> traditional sense. You hear your line. You 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 know it's your moment to come in, and he just couldn't find his way in. So he freaked out and smashed the dashboard and screamed, "I don't know about any of you, but I got lines I gotta say." <laughs> and uh, you know, I was, I was like, "Okay, let me go talk to Eric." I talked to Eric, and I was like, "Listen, listen. You know, this is. We're not gonna get them to say these lines because it's." unfolding in an organic sense your character is about is posturing <laughs> posturing the entire film if you're in this moment you've hired these guys if you can't get their attention then you can't get their attention so you're the you, boss yeah. you're the boss you have to let them know so you have to tell everyone to shut up then you can say your line and feel free to say shut up <laughs> there, just, there, there were times where he would say it multiple times and then finally he's like he got everybody's attention but that's how he has to fight through as a character yeah wouldn't it be just be easier to have actors no, because that scene in particular would not work in the same way for what we wanted. It created such an energy in that in that car 
where you had these people in the back who you feel the danger. I mean, look, the bottom line is oh, the bottom line to the answer is yes. Of it course, would be quote unquote easy. Oh yes, yes. But it's you know, if it was easy, anyone could do it. You know, you know what I mean. And it's getting that special thing that it's overcoming those obstacles that actually get you for us personally to a a new place that feels fresh. And also it's the connection of the two, you know, having actors working with these first time actors and what they both bring, you know, for Eric in particular, he's in that scene and he's working with guys who are tough guys, you know, and he has to come in and act real with them and they have to act with him. So there's this competing sensibility. Yeah, but also there's a discipline in filmmaking, isn't it? Where you can't be 30 minutes late, You, you know, don't turn up late because of course. We, we have a very, very limited yes. amount of time. Everyone who, the first timers in the film, were all very, take, took it very seriously. Yes. And it was, uh, they were getting paid nicely too. But, uh, you know, it, that's, it, that's part of the casting part process. Part of the casting yeah. process Jennifer Vendetti does do is puts the first timers through uh, a rigorous callback session. And then they have to, you know, the ones who don't take it seriously don't mm-hmm. keep coming. You know what I mean? So by the time they show up on day one, there's already been, you know, lots of rehearsals. And, they get it. Yeah, exactly. Mm hmm. Could this film have been done anywhere but New York? I mean, I don't speak. Uh, I'm sure it could have been done in Belgium, in Antwerp. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I I just don't know. That's my bottom answer. My bottom like, line. I'm yeah. sure you have to imagine that there's a universality to the story. Well, the thing, but the, there, but you, but the New Yorkness of it, I'm sure, is a yeah. real part of it. Yeah. I can't see past it. Well, though. the thing is, is once you understand it's part of New York City, it's going to take place in New York City. You have to then embrace that and allow those things to bleed into the movie. But I do think that there are Howards, you know, in quotes, that everybody knows, somebody who puts all that on the line all the time. But yes, when we understand we're going to be in New York City, we don't close down the streets. We allow them to be open for people to come through. We allow that kind of energy to just breathe through the frame. Whose idea was it? Just want to give a flavor of what this film is like. Whose idea was it to go from the very important <laughs> stone, uh, which they, which you find and dig up at the beginning uh, of the movie, into a colonoscopy? <laughs> so that was uh, Ronald Bronstein. He, he, who we wrote the film with. He, uh, he. You, fa- you knew what I was going to say. Of course, I, I did. I know. It's an incredible. I mean, <laughs> actually, con- concepting it and devising it with the VFX team was was. A lot of fun, That's a lot of switch, hard. Yeah. Have they been asked work. to do anything like that before? No, it was a lot of hard work because not only are we asking them to give us a ride through a gemstone, which there's no reference point for that. <laughs> so I have to build all these. I, I built this crazy document for them, but you all has to seamlessly transitioned into a colon. You know, I, I, Ronnie, when he had his first colonoscopy, young, younger, he, I think he was like 39 or something, and he was so amused to hear that colon issues and Judaism are so t- linked, closely tied together, and uh, he thought that was just so perfect. <laughs> did you did you enjoy the whole process of scaling up what you do into this kind of huge movie? Because you've you've always worked like this, but yeah. now it's sort of writ yeah, large. Was that fun? Yeah, that was it was it was yeah, pretty special. It was it was it was cool to see like these people who've worked on all these incredible films, you know, bring what they know and teach it to us because we want to learn as much as possible. So having that that ability, it's like, oh my god, we can do this now. You know, there was being like, able to say, hey, I want. Howard's iconic jewelry from his heyday to be a blinged out Furby <laughs> and actually go and see it be created 
you know, and design that's, that's, it. That's a disgusting <laughs> bit of jewelry, though. <laughs> Diamond encrusted Furby. And it's, it's, you know, what's so great about though is that the Furby in its eyes, you can see the sadness in its we, eyes, and you can feel it trapped inside the materialism of the of the jewelry itself. And but you even have like with with um, Darius Kanji, you know, the cinematographer. He set up this team because he knew how we were going to shoot with no blocking, three sixty lighting, and he said, "I know the perfect AC for this." So this guy Chris Solano, and he's able to focus anything you know he has this special technology that, that he's mastered and the ability for us to just have that freedom was unreal you know with our previous film it was so hard to kind of capture these close-up shots with low light we were and this, especially on this we were pushing two stops and there was it was just on anamorphic lenses so you really have no room to to miss and here we are literally catching somebody's close-up and then rolling right into a shot of a yeah, gemstone we had, we had a the, the production was was really bespoke to this and and we had the belief of from scott rudin a24 and, and netflix that we, we were mm-hmm. able to really see our our vision all the way through without compromise well we, we'll look forward to what comes next oh, thank you very much josh and benny thank you very much thank thanks you. for having us Josh and Benny Safdie, the Safdie brothers, responsible for Uncut Gems. The only bit that was taken out of that interview yeah. was me, because the, the jeweller, Adam Sandler, is Howard Ratner. Yes. And I explained to them that having a jeweller called Ratner is not something that would be done by a UK director because there's certain comedy attached to the name Ratner and jewellery anyway. And that does, and that has no... Uh, uh, no. In, in America, it doesn't mean anything they didn't, at all. They didn't know the story about Gerald Ratner and saying his stuff was crap and all that. That's right. What, was, what did he actually... He did say something about... Yes, you know, it was, I think it was a... Says, de- our stuff is junk or something or... Yeah, it was a decanter. It was a sherry decanter. I yeah. think he used he used the C word so uh, to describe it. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I explained... Uh, yeah, not the really bad C word. It was just... No, 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 no. Yes, I but know. Anyway, yeah. but, he, but by the time... You know, I explained this to them. It was water off a duck's back. You know, they'd already yeah. chosen the name Ratner. But ironic, really. Yeah. So your review... We better, you better hold on to the... Uh, yeah, we'll do it because we've got a minute and a half. But um, I, so two things I was going to say about that was firstly was how middle-brow. Uh, and second, that's a word I'm not going to get over soon. Remind me why you keep saying it. Because there was... A, it was, it was a, a, a nice review of this show uh, in I think it was a, a list of like, you know, favourite podcasts, but it referred to the programme as amiably middlebrow. Or something oh, I like think, that. I think that's a good... <laughs> I don't I even, mean, it's intended as an insult. I don't know what it means, but it sounds... You don't want to be highbrow, do you? What? No, no, exactly. So can I just ask, in, in terms of... Is there anything about... Because I've never met them. No. Do they have a Coen Brothers-like thing? Because halfway through that interview, you said, I actually can't tell which is which. I can't remember which, which one is which. No, absolutely, I can't remember which. I mean, I did... Before I did the interview, I knew because I checked them out. You know, worked out who was you know, and 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 they're looking at each other the whole time, and they yeah. finished as you could hear there. They finished each other's sentences. sentences. Yeah. So it really doesn't matter. They the thing is they're the Safdie brothers, and they do an interview as the Safdie brothers. Absolutely. And, and they any one of them can answer the other question. Yeah. Uh, which it, which was exactly what the Coens were like in, in the sort of height of that uh, for them. Christian in Sussex. If Uncut Gems, Good Time was brilliant, and if Uncut Gems doesn't make my top ten films of 2020, we will have. Have had a phenomenal year of film and Adam Sandler should really be getting more awards recognition for one of the most irritating actors I've ever known <laughs> this is a staggering performance fair play to him and massive kudos to the Safdies it is the most exhausting yeah, film I have ever seen <laughs> when it finishes you need to go for a lie down anyway reviews on the way coming up after 4.30 that's when you'll hear the conversation with Sam Mendes so the 1917 review will come your way after 4.30 okay meantime Punch drunk, 
Gems is the title of this uh, email from Christian in Rustington, and then you'll hear what Mark okay, says. Go on. If you'd told me that between the Oscars of 2019 and the Oscars of 2020, two of my favourite films in that time were going to star Vince Vaughan, Dragged Across Concrete, there wasn't any good in Fighting My Family, Fighting My Family, and Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems in leading roles, I would have asked you to leave the room. Leave the room. I saw Uncut Gems last week and haven't stopped thinking about it since. The soundtrack is exceptional, pulsating, almost constant tangerine dream-esque, pounding alongside Howard's chaotic sprint from one disastrous decision to another throughout the film. And the stressfulness of his actions lead to an incredibly tense finale, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Obviously, it's the best sound of the film since Punch Drunk Love, but this performance and film deserve to be seen and talked about without mentioning the ghost of his last good performance, which you've just done, obviously. Christian in Russington, Uncut Gems is fantastic. Well, that might be the case, but what does Mark think? Well, it was interesting because in the course of that interview, you very kindly quoted uh, what I had said about... Uh, I quote you all the time. No, but... Friends and family. That's nice. It's, yeah. I just, it was nice you do. And of course, I mean, they didn't agree with the, with the, with the quote, and I understand their disagreement as well. But um, in Punch Drunk Love, I always said the genius of that film was that what Paul Thomas Anderson managed to do was to identify the quality in Adam Sandler that had that had always kind of kept me from finding his uh, his film performances particularly funny. I do think, and we have to say this, that he has been in some of the least funny comedy films uh, around. He's made some real stinkers. I mean, real, proper, absolute turkeys. Um, he also, you know, rose to fame with the, those albums that the Safties were talking about. But I got to know him through cinema, and I, you know, well, there's some Adam Sandler comedies that I like, but many, just as many that I really, really didn't like. And I always found there was something. The word was used there was creepy. I was it was something. It was a quality to him. Now maybe the word creepy isn't right, but there was something about him that was unsettling, deeply unsettling, and I found it deeply unfunny. And in the case of Punch Drunk Love, Paul Thomas Anderson, who incidentally, should, we should say, de declares himself to be a fan of Adam Sandler. I mean, when Paul Thomas Anderson said he was making Punch Drunk Love, everyone thought at first it was a joke because he had just made Magnolia, which is a three-hour... Um, I love that. On, yeah, so do I. But it's a three-hour ensemble piece uh, movie. And it was one of those films that was at the forefront of what was later referred to as the smart cinema move of that, you know very sort of, you know, modern, cine-literate, cineast, uh, big uh, big casts, complicated interweaving stories. And somebody said, what are you doing next? He said, I'm going to make an Adam Sandler comedy. And everyone went, ah, ha, 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 ha. And he went, no, no, that is what I'm going to do. Also, it's worth bearing in mind that um, Wise Up, the Amy Mann track that right. appears in, was not written for um, Magnolia. It was written for an Adam Sandler comedy and then it didn't get used. And it ended up on the soundtrack album of the Adam Sandler com uh, uh, comedy. And that's how Paul Thomas Anderson heard it. And that's how he then put it. And it wow. then became the central piece of Magnolia. Absolutely. So there's a, there is a weird intertwining of Adam Sandler and, you know, and obviously, well, just because of their association, they had, they had worked with people who worked with each other. So I saw Punch Drunk Love. And one of the defining moments of Punch Drunk Love for me is that moment when Adam Sandler's character tries to describe to um, uh, Emily Watson's character how much he loves her. And they have this conversation in which he says, your face is so beautiful, I want to smash it with a hammer. And she says, I want to scoop your eyeballs out and eat them. And it, that is kind of the defining phrase of Punch Drunk Love, this kind of jagged, off-kilter comedy you know, love story that's also about a bunch of other things. But there is that central thing about Barry that he is like... 
he's like a volcano about to erupt. And there are these little interruptions of violence that happen. The bit when he smashes the window with the hammer, the bit when he breaks the unbreakable plunger, all this stuff, incidentally, which implies that he might be Superman. The bit when he tries to fly, the bit when he suddenly picks off the gang. You know, he suddenly grabs the tire iron and takes out four people. Just to be clear, we're not talking about Uncut Gems no, yet. No, we're talking about Punch Drunk Love. And, and I absolutely thought that the genius of that film was that Paul Thomas Anderson had seen the the quality in Adam Sandler that always made me find his comedies difficult and had worked with it. And I that came flooding back to me watching Uncut Gems. It was like watching a film, and it was interesting that they said, you know, we've been trying to do this for 10 years and he was the only person that we thought of that could make it work. Now, what's really interesting is that they said of his character, you know, he has to be kind of lovable. You have to root for him. I disagree entirely because I didn't find him lovable and I didn't root for him. (laughs) But what I found was that I found him completely believable, utterly mesmerising, completely infuriating. Um, Somebody whose company I found, like, uh, I keep going back to this phrase, like a rising wave of anxiety and panic. And what the film did, and it did it so brilliantly that I actually sort of started to feel almost claustrophobic in its company, is it's like it grabs you because it ties you to this character who is so difficult. They described him as an eternal optimist. They said, you know, the heart of, of a gambler is, is um, you know, is an eternal optimist. Again, I my thing would be that the heart of a gambler is an addict, that there's a self It's not optimism, it's self-destruction. It doesn't matter whether or not you agree with how a filmmaker interprets their own film, because I think... For a filmmaker to make a film convincingly, a filmmaker has to basically be on side often with the characters that they're working with. I thought the genius of Uncut Gems was it absolutely tied you to a character whose company I found almost intolerable and stuck you with them as they pinball from one disastrous decision to the next in a kind of an unsleeping, unresting, fidgety, anxiety-inducing, you know, uh, kind of continuum of bad choices. And the film itself has a kind of pinballing rhythm and an accelerating rhythm. And there are so many points when it's just, you just think, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and then he does that. And he's, you know, he's duplicitous and he's a liar and and he is a creep. But he's also this other thing, which is that he's somehow kind of... And what Sandler manages to do, and I say this, you know, believe me, I'd said so many times that my problem was every time Adam Sandler made a bad film, and he has made many, I think this is made worse by the fact that you made Punch Drunk Love, therefore you know the difference between a good film and a bad film. I think he should... There's no question that he should be Oscar-nominated for this because I think it is one of the the most... um, completely engrossing roles I've seen on the screen in ages. And, I, 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 you know, I think he, he should be nominated at every year because it is an absolutely brilliant performance. And it has he has produced it because he is working with two filmmakers who, I mean, in a way, the, the Safdie's kind of um, defining trope is that their films encompass you and envelop you and they're very experiential and whether it's you know Daniel Opeting's soundtrack you know uh one of tricks point never soundtrack which is kind of always at the, the side kind of boxing you in so what was his name well it's Daniel Opeting but he, he records as one of tricks point never one of tricks point never who okay. had done the soundtrack for good time which I talked about when we were reviewing good time about you know how 
how important that was to the to the central uh, ethos of that film. And of course, Robert Pattinson, who I've always thought was a very very fine actor, right back to the days of of uh, the Twilight movies. But he he's brilliant in in Good Time. He's absolutely brilliant. And of course, um, Benny Safdie is performing in that film. He's not just a, you know he's not just a director. He, he's acting in it as well. And again, that film has this sort of like I said, this rising tide of tension. And the, about halfway through the film, I was watching it and I was becoming increasingly anxious, but in a really good way, in a, re- in a way that I was thinking, this has really got me. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't turn off. I can't look away from this. It re- it's, I suddenly thought, you know, this, is, this has the trajectory and the visceral punch of Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant. And I don't mean in the way that when people, when you cite Bad Lieutenant, people think about the the excesses of Harvey Keitel's character and some of the things that Harvey Keitel's character does that are, you know, disgusting and horrible. But actually, what what that film is really about is a sort of frenzied, you know, an increasingly frenzied march towards some some kind of self-destructive, redemptive goal that is always just one thing beyond. And there is a sequence in um, in Uncut Gems when there's something that he really, really needs to have and he's been chasing it for ages and ages and ages and he can't get it. And if he can't get it soon enough, everything is going to fall apart. Incidentally, he's meantime cheating on his wife, who we heard in the thing at the beginning when she says, you are the most annoying person I've ever made and I, I hope I never see you again. And I want to I've, punch you. And I want to punch you, yeah. Um, which does actually sound like a bit outtake from Punch Rock Love. And suddenly there's a moment when the, the object that he needs is there in front of him on the other side of a locked glass door. And he can't get the door open. And it's like, it's going to go away. It's there. The thing that he needs is there and it's going to go away. And and there's hammers and blah, 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 blah. And the scene is so frustrating and so anxiety inducing. And that really, really reminded me of that, of the quality that happens in Bad Lieutenant. Bad Lieutenant, which is the Abel Ferrara film with Harvey Keitel, makes even more sense if you understand the gambling on the sports gambling that's going on on the radio all the time in the background. It's a compressed time period in which it begins with a character in debt and they have to get out of debt and they have to get out of debt through a series of machinations that involve insane levels of dangerous gambling. And I think that it really did remind me of that tonally. And I say that as a good thing because I think Bad Lieutenant, for all the notoriety it has for its more extreme elements, is actually a a kind of a textbook lesson in just ratcheting up tension. Around Adam Sandler, because I've talked a lot about Adam Sandler in this, is a, a terrific supporting cast. I mean, a really, really convincingly terrific supporting cast. Because there is not a single character in that supporting cast that I didn't believe in. And it was interesting hearing First the Safdies. Yeah. yeah, but also, you know, Eric Bogosian's and... Um, I completely believed in the family unit. I completely believed in the world in which he he lived. I completely believed in the increasingly absurd situation in which he found himself desperately, you know, he's always one, his goal is always one step ahead of him. And then even whenever he attains it, he does something that puts it out of his reach again. It's like the whole film is like some kind of conceptual pawn shop when you've got something, but you've, but you've given it away for the wrong reason. And um, I found him infuriating and I found his character really hard company and I, I couldn't look away from the film. And like you said, at the end of it, I had to, I had to basically go and lie down. It's really something. Yes, and, and completely exhausting. Don't 
don't have a Red Bull or a, don't take a coffee in. No, that's right. Because you, you do not need stimulants. No, and you will not, you know, you will absolutely not fall asleep. Even if you're the most exhausted doctor of all time because you've been working incredible shifts, you can go and see this movie and you know you will not fall asleep. Yeah. In yeah. fact, if you're a doctor, don't go and see this film because it's a little bit, it might be a little bit close to the knuckles. Speaking of our pets, by the way. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, I, sorry, I always hear that as speaking of our pats, as in. Oh, I see. You know, no, speak of Robert Pattinson, yeah. and uh, you, I know you see movies back to back all the time. Yes, but before Christmas, which is when all these films came out and all the actors came over to the UK, yes, I saw. So just bear this in mind: I saw Uncut Gems and The Lighthouse together. Okay, so, wow. so <laughs> that's a double. Bill. So, so Willem Dafoe is going to be on the show uh, as well very shortly. In terms of frantic madness-inducing couple of movies. <laughs> I would defy anyone... I know this is a bit difficult because they're not out yet, but defy anyone to come up with two more crazy-inducing <laughs> movies back-to-back. And anyway, so I... But we survived in the end. Yeah, yeah. Wow, so, OK. Sam Mendes talking 1917 will be the other side of the news yeah. um, at 4.30. What else is out? Well, let's do... See, we're talking about RPATs. Let's do Seaberg, which stars Kristen Stewart, who, of course, they uh, famously starred together in they the Twilight did. movies. And I would like to go back once again to say the Twilight movies... Always liked them. I know you did as well. And uh, there were so many people were so sniffy about them at the time. And now look at what Kristen Stewart have done and look, has done and look at what um, Robert Pattinson have done. They are really doing consistently challenging work. So in the case and of this... can I just say, in, you know, in parenthesis and as a sidebar, yes. more, maybe because they wanted to, more than the Harry Potter actors who, who do a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. But essentially, you're right, Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart, they're proper actors in proper movies and clearly they're going to be around for a while and no challenge left unembraced you know when was the last time we saw um robert pattinson was out in space in a weird claire denis science fiction film which was a kind of existential journey into the void while Kristen stewart was in uh you know personal shopper making a film that was you know maybe a ghost story i mean really interesting stuff so um, Seberg, which is uh, based on the real-life story of Jean Seberg, who was an um, actress who played a, a central role in uh, Abu Dussouf, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of so therefore tied up with the Nouvelle Vague classic. And then um, was back working in America, where she became the target of covert FBI harassment under a programme that they, they call... It's basically a counterintelligence programme, which was... Um, a sort of covert program to smear and to discredit people that the FBI thought were involved in activities that they didn't approve of. So she was um, an outspoken advocate of and financial supporter of Black Panthers, and uh, she was seen out in public to be having a relationship with uh, Hakim Jamal, who was an African American activist, played in the film by Anthony Mackie. Here is a se- here is a scene with the two of them together reading a script that she has been given for a movie that she's about to make, but also sort of playfully referencing what's happening in their own life. You don't know me, Mr. Rumson. But there's not a woman on this earth who will make you a better wife. You ought to. (laughs) I paid enough for you. I may be paid for, but I'm not your property. You grab me unwanted like that again, and I'll shoot you down like a dog. Where'd you get that? Woman has her secrets. Now put that down, or neither of us will have much of a wedding night. Now it turns out, and I didn't know this before seeing the film and then just doing some research behind it, that for quite some time there have been plans for making um, a Gene Seberg uh, movie. 
1983, there was a musical, Gene Seberg, um, librettist Julian Barry and Marvin Hamlish uh, was involved, uh, which played at the National. In 1991, Jodie Foster got the rights to played out the Gene Seberg story, and which is a, a biography, and apparently she was set to produce and star in the film but it didn't happen. Uh, there was a documentary from '95 um, called "From the Journals of uh, Gene Seberg," uh, and then there was another project recently that was going to happen, and then didn't happen. Then finally, it ended up this. This is a this is made by Benedict Andrews, whose background is in theatre, very very sort of uh, well respected in theatre. And Kristen Stewart plays uh, Seberg. Jack O'Connell plays the surveillance officer, newbie surveillance officer, who is basically sent by the FBI to bug Jean Seberg and to to bug her apartment, to break into her apartment, to find out what she's doing, to find out who she's associating with, and then increasingly to feed stories about her to public outlets which will discredit her in the eyes of the public. And it's a, it is a very, very interesting story, um, partly because it's... It is a story of really sort of nasty, covert surveillance and counterintelligence and propagandist lie spreading, which is which is really dark and has at its centre a character who seems to some, to some extent sort of headstrong, but also in some ways quite frail, who is done genuine damage by what's being done to her. I think Kristen Stewart captures brilliantly that kind of nervy edge. I mean, once again, this is a, a nervy, edgy quality that, you know, made Seberg an icon and also in this particular case makes her the victim of this thing that's going on around her. Jack O'Connell's role is kind of slightly strange in as much as he has to play somebody who's involved in the covert surveillance, but also has to come to question whether the covert surveillance is actually something that he wants to be. So he's kind of He's conflicted. He's torn between what he knows is right and what his job is asking him to do. And I think at times there's a certain staginess to the drama, a part that may be because, the, as I said, the, the, writer, the director has a background in theatre. It may be that it doesn't quite have the cinematic spark that the story promises. But the story itself is riveting and the performances are very, very committed and very, um, very well balanced so that even when sometimes the script isn't quite as sharp as I would have liked it to have been. The performances give it a weight and a heft that draws you right in and you do absolutely, um, you share the the journey that, that uh, Kristen Stewart's central character is on and you feel the the pain and the everything that's happening to her as she sort of descends into what appears to be paranoid delusion, but is actually driven by an understanding that she really was genuinely the subject of this, uh, you know, of this hideous, illicit attention and of a horrible, horrible smear campaign. So it's an interesting film. I don't think it's going to have a huge amount of um, traction at the box office. I, I don't think it's been particularly picked up with an award season because it was put forward as one of the films that was, that was eligible for BAFTAs. But I think the performances are very good. I'm a big fan of Jack O'Connell anyway. I think he's really great. And Kristen Stewart is all always interesting to watch because she gives it 100%. She completely commits to performances. I mean, again, when was the last time you saw a film, whether the film was good or bad, in which she she didn't mm. give it her absolute best? No, that's true. And it's less true of her than it is of Robert Pattinson, but the couple of times that we've spoken 
to him. It is almost as though this is someone else's observation that he's trying to become less famous with every role. <laughs> you know, that he's he's sort of dis- he doesn't he's done that. He's fine with it. You know, he's, he he did the big teen movies, and now he's just finding these really interesting. I mean, when we get to the lighthouse, you know, that's another movie altogether where he's just picking things that intrigue him. Yeah. And if they don't get massive in the box office, then he really doesn't care because he's done that already. Yeah. Um, just because we've got a couple of minutes, let me just yes. very quickly sort of leap ahead to um, to a reissue. So there is a brief theatrical reissue of El Topo, which is the Alejandro Jodorowsky film. I reviewed um, Dance of Reality a few years ago. Um, this is basically... It, it's one of the defining sort of late night cult movie favourites. Um, he stars as this kind of black clad figure going through this strange Western wilderness. The film is inspired to some extent from the 70s. So it's inspired to some extent by actual, you know, pop culture stuff that was happening at that time, but also a kind of psychedelia. Hodorowsky became a very, very important figure uh, amongst um, filmmakers who were interested in the sort of surreal side of cinema. Um, John Lennon was a big fan. Of, uh, of El Topo. If you, Richard Stanley has recently just made a film with Nick Cage, which I'm desperate to see. When Richard Stanley made Dust Devil, uh, Khodorovsky was absolutely the, the person that he was always referring back to, along with, you know, the Jallo filmmakers. But he, he's a sort of big cult figure. He was I- involved in what was going to be a production of uh, Dune. Um, so he's, you know, he has a, a, has a great cachet amongst cult film and midnight movie uh, stuff. The film is also very, very problematic because without wishing to go into too much detail about this, at the time that the film was made, Hodorowsky made some outrageous claims about a a rape scene in it that have subsequently been retracted, but even as recently as 2019... Um, an exhibition or a retrospective of his films was pulled from uh, a museum because this uh, interview resurfaced. It subsequently, he subsequently said, I didn't mean what I said. I said it as an art provocation thing. It doesn't matter. The interesting thing about about it is that it's a film that has real uh, cult cachet. And I w- was first aware of it because it was one of those things that you'd see at the Scala. Famously, William Friedkin saw it and uh, got Gonzalo Guevara, who was the sound guy to do the sound effects, do some of the sound effects for Exorcist. So that famous story about the um, the turning head in The Exorcist when Reagan's head turns around. Gonzalo Guevara did that by standing um, underneath a microphone with a leather wallet. Um, this is now not going to work. And You've got a leather wallet in your hands. And he did that. And, and that was the sound of the, when you hear the neck cracking in The Exorcist, that's it. Do that again. OK, so it should have credit cards in, but mine doesn't. It, that's the sound of Reagan's head going round, as done by Gonzalo Guevara, who was the sound guy who was working with Hodorowsky. Anyway, as I said, it's a controversial movie. Um, it is uh, its cult. Its cult importance is uh, undeniable. I'm not sure that it's aged as well as it could have done, um, but there are some striking things in it, also some crassness behind uh, behind the, the veneer. But Hodorowsky is when people think about midnight movie classics, that's whom they think of. And El Topo means the mole. The mole is that right? right? Yes. The what mole. about as you've just been a live foley artist? Why don't Thank we? You. Why don't we have we suggest that in the studio we have a, we have some sound effects so in radio like spot effects? So we could, if you're doing you know one of those scenes, that we could actually then I could do the scenes that you're describing. Okay, if that's you know walking over sand, I could do I could do the sand and all the big scenes. Then I could try and reproduce them in the studio. What do you think? I, okay, fine. 
Would you join in for the complicated <laughs> If it's scenes? important for you, yes. Doing Waterworld, we can have a little tank. What do you think? All right. TV movie of the week, James Woodward says, Ex Machina, please. Brilliant chamber piece that I've always thought would work equally well as a stage play. Proof that the best science fiction is the cinema of ideas, not spectacle. Natalie Wiltshire, Ex Machina, having watched this multiple times, still intrigued and shocked every time. Mark will pick this or The Master. Uh, Anthony Sin, The Straight Story, showed us what a David Lynch film looked like when he wasn't busy being Lynchian. The result was a gentle and moving story about one man's literal and emotional journey. It's a terrific movie that the entire family can enjoy. Richard Irwin Jones says, Forrest Gump on a tractor is worth (laughs) revisiting, but for me it's Dead Man's Shoes for the visceral intensity of the always marvellous Paddy Considine in his probably best performance. And finally, Sam Osborne, easily the master. Every time I've seen it, I'm sadly reminded we will never see another film showcasing the impeccable scope and range of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is our TV movie of the week. It's a double bill. Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is five to seven in the evening on Wednesday on Talking Pictures because it's just wonderful. And Dead Man's Shoes, the Shane Meadows film with Paddy Considine, 20 past 11 at night on Thursday on Film 4. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Melinda says, wait, they have Pirates of the, TV, Pirates of the TV Movie of the Week in the So Bad It's Bad too, because we put them in both categories. Yeah, exactly. Even they can't make up their mind, but I love it. Not everything has to be smart and beautiful and high and mighty. Sometimes a comfy laugh is enough. I like that idea of a comfy laugh. Yeah. Ian Lambert, it has to be Sleepwalkers, because I actually like the other three. Yes, really. Covenant is another slice of... Uh, yes, excess from the Scott that made Hannibal. Pirates was fine and only looks bad by association with those terrible sequels. Voodoo Roy says, I paid actual money to see Sleepwalkers at a cinema. This is the first time I've thought about that film since I was 19. Thinking about it leaves me wondering how bad can James Corden as a cat be? <laughs> Uh, Doug Whelan, I remember reading somewhere that the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie was retooled from a long-abandoned first-draft screenplay called The Secret of Monkey Island. Uh, David McPherson, I'd love to know what his and everyone's suggestion for a good pirate movie is. It's The Crimson Pirate with Burt Lancaster for me. Great action, every pirate cliche possible. No buckle is left unswashed. Uh, And Nid says the only way to enjoy Covenant is to watch Prometheus right before it. Great in comparison. The Secret of Monkey Island, by the way, is a video game. What is our TV movie of the week so bad it's bad? Alien Covenant or Alien Convent, nine at night on Saturday on Channel 4. Why? Because it's rubbish. Stop spoiling Alien. Let's talk about one of the most talked about movies uh, that's around at the moment. You'll be aware of all the awards talk for 1917. Its director is Sam Mendes. By the way, he hadn't been knighted when we did this interview. Uh, You'll hear from him after a clip. Colonel McKenzie has not seen these aerials of the enemy's new line. Come around here, gentlemen. Three miles deep, field fortifications, defences, artillery, the like of which we've never seen before. The second are due to attack the line shortly after dawn tomorrow. They have no idea what they're in for. And we can't warn them. As a parting gift, the enemy cut all our telephone lines. Your orders are to get to the second at Kwasi Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Akust. Deliver this to Colonel McKenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions. 1,600 men, your brother among them. You think you can get there in time? Yes, sir. And that's a clip from Sam Mendes' new film, 1917. And I'm delighted to say that Sam Mendes is here. Hello, Sam. How are you? Hi, Simon. I'm very well, thank you. The last time we spoke, which was for Bond, 
you I remember one of the main things I remember from that interview was that you'd said you'd finally locked it and walked away like a day before we'd done the interview yeah. or it was really really at the last minute yeah. so when did you walk away from this it wasn't much different actually to be honest with you this was slightly crazy I had in my head that we would start shooting in April and we would release by the end of the year I'm a big believer in sort of you know positive momentum and because we didn't edit this movie in the conventional sense anyway we didn't sort of spend a nice relaxed eight weeks putting it together I thought, well, you know, we should be able to get it ready quite quickly. But that was very naive of me because I think the sound, musical landscape and the amount of visual effects really took me by surprise. So we didn't, in fact, finish it until about, uh, from where we're talking now, two weeks ago. Yeah. So it's fresh. It's fresh. It's fresh. Um, <laughs> it's not rotten. <laughs> how would you describe it? How would I describe it? Goodness me. Um, an unconventional war movie, I suppose. Um it's not a combat film. Uh, there's very little bloodshed, so it's a very unusual war movie in that regard. And its shape and form are also very unconventional because it takes place in two hours of real time. And obviously there's also only one shot. So it operates more like a thriller or even at times a horror movie in terms of the way it establishes, it kind of uh, thrives on a kind of low-grade tension. But, you know, I never went to war and, and I'm fascinated in it, but I'm not fascinated in it because of the combat or even the historical manoeuvres. I'm fascinated because of what it does to human beings because of, of all the situations that human beings have created for themselves. It's the one where you most see human beings stripped to their essence, you know, stripped of social class, stripped of structures that exist outside war. And, um, and so for me, it's a film about friendship and a search for a brother, what it means to have a brother and, and what it means to go home. Um, and above and beyond all the sort of technical discussions of how, the why is, is more to do with that friendship between the two men and, uh, and what happens to them on, in these two hours. And the why is, is, is a very interesting question, but presumably this is also one of the most personal films that you've ever made, <coughs> maybe the most personal film. Could you just yeah. tell us a little bit about your grandfather because that, that's really the start of this story. Yes, it is. It's the first time I've ever written anything. I mean, of anything of substance, anyway, other than a couple of articles. And uh, it's the first time I've ever made anything based on my family history. Uh, my grandfather fought in the war. He fought from 1916 to 1918. His name was Alfred Mendez. And uh, he arrived there. Uh, he enlisted. He chose to go as a very young man, 17-year-old. And um, he never spoke about his experiences to his children, to, his, to my dad, effectively, or, or his brother, it was only in his 70s that he decided that he was going to let his grandchildren know about it. I think we pestered him and were excited and thought it was going to be glamorous. But all his stories, none of them were about heroism or bravery or victory. They were about <clears throat> luck and chance and coincidence and how thin the line was that separated him from his friend who was hit by a, directly hit by a shell and just disappeared while standing next to him in the trench and he said he couldn't bury him because uh, there was just simply nothing there and obviously when you're 11 or 12 those, those sorts of stories make an impact and he told us one story that just wouldn't let me go it's, and it's not a big story it was about carrying a message through no man's land I can't even remember the details of it but I remember just that image of that small man he was a small man in the dusk carrying the message and it, it wouldn't let me go and I thought well when it I finally gained the confidence to write something. That was the story 
I found that I wanted to write. I just had to find a situation in the war, which fundamentally was a war of paralysis, a war of stasis, you know, millions of men dying, just jumping out of a trench and over 200 yards of land, really, which would allow for a, a sort of more epic journey, a mythic journey that took us across multiple landscapes. And it's notable, I think, although it's only a small part of your film, that the generals are portrayed in a way, you know, lions led by donkeys is the standard thing that we've seen a million times. Not so in this film. No, I think, you know, I was very conscious of trying to not correct exactly, because obviously there are certain commanding officers, Haig being the obvious one who sent men over the top in the Somme, who who perhaps uh, (laughs) were not the greatest military leaders of all time. But I was very conscious that there not be baddies in this film, that all of these men are lost in the fog of war. Uh, you know, there's a pressure, I suppose, narrative pressure to sort of create a sort of Kurtz figure, perhaps at the end, who's gone loco and rogue and is just sending men randomly over the top to their deaths. But I wanted even him, when they arrived at him, to be someone just struggling to do the right thing. I was very determined to r- try and kind of circumvent some of those cliches for example the cliche that says you know men cowering uh, in a trench about to go over the top to their certain death right i don't believe i mean people were frightened going over the top people were adrenalized but most of the people going over the top at various points thought they were going to victory not to certain death i think that's something we impose upon it a kind of hazy a kind of fog of nostalgia, you know, that, that gets applied to this war a lot. And, you know, it's a contemporary take on a historical period. It's not a documentary, it's not a history movie. You don't need to know anything about the First World War to go there. It's a contemporary cinematic style applied to this this war and contemporary score and all the bells and whistles of contemporary cinema making in surround sound, IMAX, etc. One of the reasons why the film is breathtaking is the way you've chosen to shoot it need to talk about Roger Deakins because he's like your right-hand man uh, in this. And you've mentioned this kind of one-shot technique. You could have told the story of two young soldiers trying to pass on a message in a number of different ways. You Mm -hmm. chose to go down this one-shot technique. Why why did you do that? Well, first of all, you know, Roger is, Roger Deakins, as you say, is a kind of I've taken to introducing myself as Roger Deakins' director. Um, (laughs) And one of the journalists, I just did an interview in the States, and he said, so other than winning Roger Deakins his second Academy Award, why did he choose to do this movie? (laughs) So there was that as well. Um, Yeah, there there was um, this feeling that I had that I wanted the audience to be locked into real time with the characters, to not escape, to not be able to get out, to experience time in a real sense, uh, you know, as much as they could, every second ticking by, every step of the way, and also feel the distances between things. And then the challenge was how to not make it monotonous, how to not make it repetitive, how to make sure we weren't just stuck behind two men walking along a trench, you know. And so, you know, I, for me, I wanted the movie to be sometimes subjective and very uh, intimate, but other times also objective and see the men in a vast landscape. And it was this constant dance between the camera, the characters and the landscape. There were three things. And that was what Roger and I spent weeks and weeks and weeks talking about. And at the end of the day, there weren't any rules we discovered. There were just it was just instinct. So for me, it was just trying to get a style that was particular to this film. And you know, we, we often 
talk either with members of the crew when I do movies about you know other movies that might look or in, look like the movie we're trying to make or inspire us or what have you. And I found that there was almost nothing with this movie that we could show except photographs of the period because there were no movies that worked quite in this way. They're very, very brilliant subjective movies like Son of Saul, for example, which I thought was spectacular. And then there are movies shot on very, very wide angle lenses like uh, The Revenant or Birdman, which also have a kind of um, slight sense of magic realism about them. You know, Birdman, even though it's a continuous shot, actually takes place over several days and is a kind of weird dream and, and also repeats the same locations again and again. But this one, we were just moving forward constantly. I wanted this feeling that we were being pulled through the movie, pulled through these landscapes, kind of a gravitational force in a way. And we, we knew we had to take every step with the characters. The horror movie trope is, I don't want to see what's around the next corner, but I have to go around the next corner. And that is <laughs> the sort of tension this movie depends on all the time. And so it, it was very much its own thing. And uh, I think if the thing I'm proudest of, in a way, is that we've we found the language that the movie required and that the sense of content and form being inextricably linked. It was something that hmm. I felt we did better in this movie than we've done in anything else. I think, I mean, I do think... The film is sensational. I absolutely... Thank you. It's, it's a triumph and I can't wait to go and see it again. I didn't want to go straight back in and see it again because it's not one of those films I think you have to leave it to settle and then go back uh, and see it again. I only have one complaint, <laughs> which and I don't know how much control directors have over the trailer. And this comes up time and time again on the programme. People will have... I kind of think if it's in the trailer, it's we can talk about it because everyone has seen it because mm -hmm, it's out there. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to... Because there is a scene that's in the trailer, which is in the last five minutes of the film, one of the most astonishing sequences that you have in there. And it has one soldier in it, and it's in the last five minutes. And I'm sort of annoyed, really, that, that, that people have seen that because they should be leading up to... True, to that. of course. And it's, it's Can you constant. not stop this nonsense? That's <laughs> well, what I'm saying. You know, we're making an enormous movie, Simon, with, with no real movie stars in the leads, and we have to try and get people <laughs> to come and see it. <laughs> and the reviews at that point have not come out. You don't know whether it's going to do well or not. So there's a constant debate about this, you know, and I as a storyteller, you know, it, it literally gives me physical pain to think that I might have given away what happens in the story. But I figure always that, Images out of sequence don't actually tell you that much. The characters are split up at some point in this movie. It doesn't tell you absolutely what happens. And we did work very hard to make sure that one or two significant plot points were protected from the audience. But it is constant in, in every piece of material, and every piece of, you know, you, you, you give away story. But I think it's something that's, that's had to happen a little bit more in cinema now because you're fighting the sort of week-by-week -week relationship that television has with an audience. It's a constant dialogue. You know, you've got hours and hours of Game of Thrones. You know, this goes back and forth and back and forth and you debate it and discuss it and there's descriptions of the episodes in the papers and then you <laughs> go, you know, it's like, as if you need to be told yeah. what you have seen, you know what I mean? But that's part of the dialogue and, and movies struggle with that because there's just one of them. You know, you're building up expectation but you're keeping your story alive all through that time until the movie releases. So it's it's a tricky one, you know, not to... I mean, the other thing, of course, that was very weird for me... We didn't do a single edit in this movie, but the trailer's full of them, <laughs> you know. And so it's it's weird to see images that yeah. were not designed to be edited at all uh, suddenly cut. And, you know, you think, well, that's not designed as a close-up. You know, that's a moving shot, but you've used it as a close-up because you have to have that line in the picture. So 
It is very odd to see a sort of slightly bastardised version of your own movie before you before the just public a, could see it. Just finally, when you left Bond, you did directed a couple of plays, and that mm. was sort of very different. Obviously, you were getting out of your system. I would think this film must leave you feeling in this. What, what do I do next? You know, this is it's been such a personal mm. story for you. Does it make you want to go back to theatre? Yes, I pretty much always, the moment I've done a movie, well, first of all, I want a holiday, and then I, I do hanker after the peace and relative tranquility of a rehearsal room. But this one's different, actually. I don't know what, I th- what I'll think about making a conventional film after this. It, it's been such a different experience. It's unlike any other movie I've made. Very, very challenging, difficult at times, very frustrating. There were definitely days when I thought, why have I done this to myself? You know, I just, there's a 10 minute take and nine minutes and 40 seconds of absolutely perfect. Everything about it is magic. Never do it again. Oh, the camera operator just tripped. And you have to do it again from the beginning. That's it. There is no way to use that nine minutes and 40 seconds of magic. And you're so used as a film director to being able to, I just have to do it once, you know, and you've got it, you've got it. It's like sort of capturing lightning in a bottle. So there were days like that. But then when you get it, it's so exciting. It seems like the only way to make a film. (laughs) And there's something very special and unusual about it. So I don't know. I think probably it leaves me wanting to edit again, but to not take it for granted and perhaps edit in a different way. Sam, we could talk for hours, but anyway, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Sam Mendes talking 1917, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, since the interview, now Sir Sam, Sir Sam Mendes. Yeah. So, uh, Mark, time is, time is tight. Well, it's interesting. We saw it together. I mean, obviously, when you talk about this continuous shot, as he said there, you know, a 10-minute sequence. So it is a series of continuous shots put together to give the impression of a single continuous image, albeit with certain ellipses as well, because there are moments when things happen and there'll be like a kind of, you know, so, but the film basically plays out as a, as a single continuous experience. That's the point. And um, uh, the story is very simple. We heard it in that clip. The, the clip, the thing. Colin Firth, that's the story. That's the story. That's you need thing. to get from here to there to stop this thing happening. Thank you. There, go. Um, uh, the, so that setup is is really simple. What the what that um, continuous single shot thing does, and I think this is what Sam Mendes was saying, is it puts you in the position of the the two main characters because you discover the world as they discover it. Um, the cinematography is extraordinary. It follows, it overtakes. Sometimes you get a God's eye view. But generally, you see the world of these different landscapes as they find it out. And it was very interesting that uh, Sam Mendes evoked horror films there. He said the horror thing, but you don't want to know what's around the corner, but you have to go. Because it's also significant that although, as he said, the film is not a film with uh, with bloodshed in it, it is a film with the horror of violence writ large. I mean, there is going through those wastelands that are almost like underworld, you know, uh, the, the, the carnage and violence of war, I think, is very, very well portrayed and, and done in a way which really makes you think this is dangerous. Also, in terms of the the theatrical experience of seeing the film, um, there were three moments that I nearly jumped out of my skin, and you know because you were sitting next to me. Um, there's one, there's two particular sequences in which I re- I gasped and then there's one sequence which I thought was brilliantly done in which something appears to be happening a long way away and then almost unnoticed is happening very, very close. And that really did give me, I mean, I thought it was really beautifully orchestrated because it was a thing about something in the distance seems strange and then suddenly something up close seems really, really horrifying. And I did feel all the way through that those characters were in peril. 
And I didn't know, because I hadn't, you know, I, I know you were talking about the trailer, but I didn't know how the story was going to play out. Um, and I, I really liked the fact that the film basically told you the information as the characters found it out. I think the other thing that's really important about it is it does have this for all its for all the reality for all its you know feet in the in the mud in the trenches and the and the actual the physicality of what they have to do there are some strange surreal sequences there's a sequence in which everything appears to be illuminated in a yellow phosphorescent haze there is very um clear religious analogy built into the fabric of the story. There are moments when it appears to be a kind of, um, you know, a Homeric odyssey, and I think that was a phrase that he used himself. There are times that the journey that they're having to do through these different landscapes appears to be like an underworld, overworld exploration. Is it daytime? Is it nighttime? Also, the fact that the way that the film is constructed without giving anything away about this, it is bookended with scenes which mirror each other, which which mirror the the entirety of the of the narrative. It begins in a certain way and it ends in a certain way that almost kind of that almost I mean it doesn't, but almost lends a kind of dreamlike quality to everything that has happened. Um, I thought the performances were terrific. I think the music is great. That it is significant that one of the most important scenes in the film is a scene that uses song and uses the power of music. I'm just writing that down now. That's what I was. I wanted to mention that. Yeah, because in a film in which the evocation of the the violence of war and the tragedy of war, which I think is brilliantly captured in George Mackay's eyes, the youth and the old before their time and lost before their time. You know, it was interesting. Sam Mendes said that thing about people thought that they were going to win. And I was thinking about um, Peter Jackson's uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, in which we heard the voices of people saying, yeah, we, you know, we said we, we, we thought it was going to be an adventure almost. And, that w- and it was interesting that Jackson said he didn't want to just reproduce that idea of people just having this one experience of it, you know, being terrible and disastrous. But um, there is the the way in which the the film is choreographed, it is significant that there is a, there are moments in it which music is very, very important. And it was very important that there is this moment in which the film actually st- stops, is stopped by a moment of song, which brings everyone together in this kind of, quasi-religious silence I found very, very moving, very moving and affecting. So I think it's on a, as a piece of direction, it uses that one-shot in inverted commas format very well. And I thought as a, as a, as a simple story of going from here to here, it actually became metaphysical as it was doing it. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was terrific. Um, We'll talk more about this in future episodes. People will send in their emails on that. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Five Live. Mark, your film of the week. Well, it's a double bill. 1917 and Uncut Gems are both my film of the week. Well, that was the show. And stand by because it's going to be Star Wars time in just a moment. But Mark, I did think you were particularly good this week. Thank you. You know that everybody knows that we... Stop, stop that, stop that, stop that. Just stop it. Everybody stop it. Knows that the dice is loaded. It's time for our DVD yeah. of the That's week. That's a new impression. I haven't done Leonard Cohen before. I thought it was Tom Waits. No. S- singing Leonard no. Cohen. No, okay. Top, it's very different, okay? okay. Tom Waits. Tom Waits. <sighs> Leonard Cohen. 
Everybody knows that the dice. It's the totally same. different. It's the same. Totally different. It's exactly the same. Bit in local hero. No, no, that's Jimmy Cagney. <laughs> it's time for DVD of the week. Hey Mark. Hey Simon. Hey Mark. Hey Simon. I was on my. Hey Mark. Oh dear. I was on my way home from work. I'm regretting Christmas this already. When I, when I stopped at my local shop. Yes. To buy some confectionery. Oh dear. Picking up a few last-minute goodies. Mm-hmm. A whisper mint, a trio or three, yeah. a bumper pack of toffos, <laughs> a dozen toasted coconut banjo bars. You know the sort of thing. Yes. You won't believe what happened next. I I, I dread to think. Suddenly. Pennywise the clown burst in and stole all the licorice. It takes all sorts. Oh. <laughs> well, welcome to 2020. We begin as we mean to continue. Wittertainy Robin Heisman has claimed We've created a monster with this for segment. that joke. It takes. It, all it sorts. takes all sorts. Where did that joke come from? Uh, Robin Heisman, who's a Wittertainy. It just... obviously is in inverted commas. Yeah. No, I know. You don't have to explain it. That will just. It's like nailing the joke to a tree. Do you think? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it indicates that it's chapter two. We've been holding on to that joke for months. (laughs) I'm really impressed that none of you have cracked and just told me. It chapter two gets a mega release on 4K, 8K, 16K, Rampack, Steelbook, written out on (laughs) development and interpreted by a Parisian street mime artist with a red balloon. Let's hear what we all think should be the keeper this week. Faith Clements, it's chapter two was a lost opportunity to deliver something scary and unsettling. The older the losers club got, the harder Pennywise had to work, and apart from one scene, it failed. Part one worked and was a roller coaster ride of a film. Mozza on Twitter, but not that one. <laughs> Thank heavens. Somebody Just, gave me a bag. I think it may, it may have been Jamie gave me a bag for a Christmas present, which said, Shut up, Morrissey. Fair enough. Just finished a lengthy re- reading of it, a really tough book to put into film, in my opinion. But I felt the director's cast and crew did a credible job, loved the younger actors. Most of, uh, many of the adult actors actually managed to look and sound like their believable older equivalents too. Uh, John Hartnup, over a decade ago, I persuaded my partner and a friend to accompany me to see a showing of The Colour of Pomegranates with a live score by someone or other. They did not thank me afterwards. <laughs> James Rogerson, I haven't seen The Farewell yet, but it's one of the few 2019 releases I still really want to see. So that's my pick. What is our DVD of the week? Double Bill, The Farewell. The Farewell. And Pain and Glory. Pain and Glory. Those two. Why? Well, The Farewell, because it's great, and Pain and Glory, because it's great. Excellent. Very good reasons. <laughs> okay. Happy. Well argued. I just want to get on to Star Wars, and I'm aware that we've got 12 minutes. Yeah, we have. Is there, is there a warning, Claxon? Here we go. Stand by. Spo- is that it? <laughs> Spoiler alert. We got asked for this, so... Yeah. I'm, it goes against the grain, but I'm now going to read out some emails which talk about spoilers. What happens in yeah, Star Wars? Yeah. So if you don't want to know, stop listening now. Listen to Fortunately or Mark Brexit Smith. Cast or something. Mark Smith, Mark and Simon. I was in the shower the other day and I audibly declared, "Where the hell did those star destroyers come from? <laughs> Who built them? Have those people been on those things all this time? What have they done for food?" Have they just been sat patiently waiting for the moment when they dramatically cracked through the surface? I even said out loud, what, when it happened in the film? I then afterwards started to doubt myself. Had I had a sudden and poorly timed nap and missed Richard E. Grant delivering some valuable expositional dialogue, had Abdominal Gleeson mentioned it, what was going on? (laughs) 
You know, well, firstly, that that actually sounds like the argument from from <clears throat> clerks, clerks about who built the Death Star and were they still rebuilding it at the point that it got blown up. But it's also chimes with my feeling about a spaceship gets shot at, crash lands on a planet where there is no local auto parts thing, and somebody says, it'll take me a couple of days to fix it. And you think, from what? If you've blown a part up and it's broken, where are you going to get the spares? Alex Brennan in Wiltshire, my thoughts, generally not happy as an original trilogy, not also fan of episodes seven and eight. I think they really dropped the ball, put together a film based on a furious Reddit thread by people that hated The Last Jedi. (laughs) It's all fan service. My main complaint, no stakes. C-3PO sacrifices himself with a memory wipe to save the galaxy, then 30 minutes later... His memories are restored. No stakes, no sacrifice. Too many deaths and reanimations. E.g. Chew is dead. No, he's not. Yeah. Kylo's been killed by Ray. No, she's revived him. Ray's dead. No, she's revived by Kylo. Bringing back Palpatine was a big mistake. They had the space to do something new. The path was cleared by The Last Jedi and they bottled it. Um, Chris White. Now, Chris White, by the way, Chris White. Okay. ExoMars spacecraft operations engineer. No. That's what it says here. Wow. Although Rise of Skywalker kept me entertained, or at least bamboozled during its runtime, <laughs> thinking about it afterwards raises a lot of questions, such as, how did Palpatine survive his previous workplace injury and the subsequent <laughs> destruction of said workplace? If he came back after that, how do we know he won't come back after this? Good point. Yep. Who exactly built all those star destroyers? <laughs> Will planet-killing weaponry continue to get smaller until it becomes handheld and the next hand solo can... And shoot first in a bar and commit planetary genocide. (laughs) Why did Leia never give Chewie his medal? And why did he only get it after she died? Was Leia secretly a Wookiee racist? (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to assess this film in isolation when it's meant to be part of a trilogy. Although I wonder if anyone told the writers that. The three films of this trilogy don't fit together at all. Like one of those games where you draw a piece of a monster, fold the paper over, and the next child draws the next part without seeing the first. Mm-hmm. Then you unveil the complete thing at the end. It's a trilogy bodged together quicker than a pair, quicker than a repair to the Falcon, and it's a shame that the beloved franchise from far, far away was spoilt by an unnatural hunger to make some credits really, really soon. That's interesting. Can I leap in? Yes. Okay, so... Uh, since we're doing spoilers, so um, I th- I absolutely agree with the the, the stakes issue. Um, my main problem with the film is twofold. Firstly, it is true the thing about it's it's not a it's not a, a trilogy. What we have is a sequel to part one, in which basically largely ignores all the interesting things that Last Jedi did, and the key one there is Ray from nowhere becomes Ray from somewhere, and I think that's a, a big mistake. Um, because we know for a fact that J.J. Abrams, when he was doing the original right with, with Lawrence Kasdan, um, was they were projecting ahead to where the story may go, and they were clearly thinking that Ray had ancestry. And then when Ryan Johnson wrote and directed Last Jedi, which I still think is far and away the best of the three, <clears throat> um, he came up with this really, really interesting idea that she isn't, she, she isn't, she's Ray from nowhere, that's the point. And that lovely thing at the end with the kid picking up the, you know, the, the yeah, stick, and, and which is, so the whole thing is you don't have to be from somewhere, you can be Ray from nowhere and be really important. 
And then in three, it's no, no, she is Ray from somewhere. She's Palpatine's, uh, you know, uh, grand. I think she was always going to be from somewhere in the end. No, that, that I think that Last Jedi thought she wasn't. That's right. The second thing is, I absolutely agree about um, uh, kill Chewbacca. No, no, he's. Where did the second thing come from? You know, you go. Um, and I, when it happened, I was really shocked. Like, wow, they killed Chewbacca. And oh no, they didn't. And um, there was a little, I had a conversation with Jack Howard about this. And Jack Howard said that he and his friends were discussing it. And they all said, Ryan Johnson would have killed Chewbacca. And they're right. And that's the point. Um, the, the greatest cop out was wiping 3PO's brain and then it's back again. Back again I yeah. mean, the, the, the lack <clears throat> of conviction, that, that I thought was, was definitely. Was, while I enjoyed the film whilst it was playing out, those things were all to do with playing it safe and to, and to, to undoing the radical things that Ryan Johnson had done in uh, Last Jedi. Uh, this is a, a tough email from Kate Zilla Sharp, okay. age 36 and two thirds. I will try and do it justice. Uh, trusted church elders, flaky medium term listener turned recent complete devotee, first time scribe here. Star Wars, to my mind, is the greatest story ever told for similar sentimental reasons, and the new film is nothing short of profound and prophetic for me. I was born in 1983, and my earliest childhood memory is watching Star Wars at home with my dad, aged five. As an only child and his daughter, my complete and immediate obsession with the films undoubtedly created a unique bond that other gender-appropriate pursuits such as dolls' houses and ponies might not have. I never got into dolls' houses and ponies as it happened and spent my first 23 years until my dad's death in 2006 as his apprentice, cheering him on from the sideline of a rugby pitch, him cheering my sporting exploits, changing tyres on cars, drinking pints and always, always loving Darth Vader above all. Mm. That's paragraph one. Mm -hmm. Paragraph two. My dad's passing left a chasm in my life that I have never found the words for. However, the complicated weave of the father, mother, son, daughter narrative that Star Wars, and in particular J.J. Abrams in Kylo Ren, has created is the closest I've come to articulating my feelings. Adam Driver's staggering performance played out my own blind anger at how I am... Uh, at how I am from the life I imagine, how far I am from the life I imagined before my dad's death, the exhaustion of conflicting inner monologues that lives with me still, and ultimately the hope that the influence of my parents will prevail. <clears throat> I'm now going to take a mouthful of tea. Excuse me. <clears throat> I've never saved a galaxy by chucking away a lightsaber, but. <clears throat> So you have to stay with me on this. Yeah, it's fine. <clears throat> I've never... <laughs> what I like about this email from Kate is that she has throwaway comedy like chucking away a lightsaber and then lines like this. So I've never saved a galaxy by chucking away a lightsaber, but as my dad lay dying, the only word I managed, mum uh, the only word I managed to mumble through the tears was dad. His reply, I know. So this is my thank you to Star Wars. <clears throat> To JJ, to the dark side, to my new obsession with Adam Driver, just thank you. Plot holes, Jar Jar Binks and Ewan McGregor's English accent do not matter. In a saga this epic, Star Wars has been with me my entire life and I could not be more grateful for it. Blimey, what a mess to make an email. So, what can you say? Well, I mean, what a lovely email and... Um and it just it just goes to sort of reaffirm that thing that the role that films and particularly film series can play in people's lives 
goes so far beyond the mechanics of you know of cinema itself. There's there is this famous um you know saying that that you know that cinema is like a dream, and that and the reason it seems so real is because it mimics um, the shape of a dream. When you imagine something in your in your mind, the way in which you see it is very much like the way a film unspools. And sometimes films can become the, the a, a a thing which is almost more real than the well, I don't mean you don't know the difference between fact and fiction. I mean their their emotional impact is such that it can kind of bypass all the stuff about, you know, the Ewan McGregor's accent and the plot things, it doesn't matter. You kind of experience them on a fundamental level. And I think that what that email says, and it's beautifully written, as you say, the juxtaposition of, you know, the throwaway coming in and and the rest of it is that no matter how much people tell us that cinema's a dying art form and blah, 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 blah. No, it isn't. It isn't because it serves a fundamental human need, which was expressed by Roger Ebert in the the phrase. He said, cinema is a machine for producing empathy. And I think that's what it is at its best. And I think that that's what that's that's about. And finally, just before we're done... uh with the with these spoilers, I just want to finish yeah. with this okay. on, a, on a lighter note. Okay, from Chris Holt, I saw Frozen Two and The Rise of Skywalker today. As they are the same same film, mm-hmm. I can review them at the same time. Okay, a young lady learning to harness her newfound mystical power must go on a quest that will not only save herself and everyone else, but also reveal the secrets in her lineage uh, that have been buried for decades. Initially seeking to go on her quest alone, her close-knit group refused to allow it and insist they will accompany her on her path, but ultimately she's forced to leave them behind and face her final test alone. How is it going so far? You're very good. That test proves almost too much. She does learn her true and disturbing heritage, that although her parents were lovely, a rather nasty grandfather has been the source of all the bother that's been going on for the years. Nice way of putting it. <laughs> while she is... Oh, you know all that bother. All that bother. While she is able to make amends for the misdeeds of her ancestor, the girl is only able to save everyone else by sacrificing herself. Fortunately, the film is able to both have its cake and to eat that delicious cake. After delivering the emotional and dramatic gut punch of her death, she is quickly rescued resurrected so nobody is too sad for too long a serviceable but unoriginal sequel with satisfying moments some laughs and nostalgic musical cues clearly made by committee to maximize financial return from a franchise that's already said uh, all it ever needed to tinkety tonk down with committees that's chris holt that's very Same very film. good that's very good thank you for all the spoilers also lily thank you very much for your email and down with stress-induced insomnia, indeed. Mark, you've been fabulous. So have you. No, you've been particularly. No, you've been better. More fabulous than ever before. <laughs> well, 2020, you know. Ten more, Ten more years. Ten more years. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. I bid you welcome. The bloody legend is here, and we're totally obsessed with Dracula. There are monsters in this world. Creatures that'll leave a shadow on your soul. Join me, Haley Campbell, to delve into the history, the myths, and the characters episode by episode. Plus, the writers, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss, creators of Sherlock. Hello, I've been dying to meet you. Obsessed with Dracula, the podcast. Download and subscribe now at BBC Sounds.